much horror business Driving late at night Psycho 78 12 o'clock Don't be late I said all this horror business Greetings and salutations My name is Justin Lore, And I'm Liam O'Donnell And you are listening to episode 57 of Horror Business <laughs> Today we are tackling some heavy hitters yeah, we are going to be discussing two of the greatest films in any horror franchise ever. Sure, we are going to be talking about Alien Resurrection and Alien Covenant. They're so good. Yes. April Fool, ah. April Fool. The, what's ridiculous is we're recording this on April first. Yeah, you won't hear this on April. No, 1st. but April, you were you are the April Fool. Consider this a a, a retro fool. You have been fooled in yes. April. We're actually talking Alien and Aliens, because fuck Ridley Scott for making Alien Covenant, and then fuck that uh, French guy for making Alien Resurrection. I mean... Alien... Is he French? It looks French. Look, look, Alien Resurrection is bad. Yeah. But I don't think it's as bad as Prometheus. No. That's just my opinion, but I'm sticking with it. Prometheus has a disturbing lack of Ron Perlman in it. <laughs> um, yeah, we're talking about Alien and Aliens. Uh, you know, it occurs. It occurred to us, so, you know, it doesn't come across this way, but me and Justin, we occasionally plan for this show. Yeah. We talk about movies we want to cover, and, uh, you know, if you're, if, you're a, if you're a horror lightweight, you might feel like we've already covered all the movies. And if you're a real horror aficionado, you might feel like, why do they pick the movies they pick? Why do we have to have that OIDS episode? Yeah. How about you, uh, if you don't like what we pick, how about you, we fucking meet in a mountaintop and engage in ritual combat? Okay, that was a little intense. Point is, is that we do talk about it. And um, it occurred to us, you know, we haven't covered a lot of classics. Yeah. It's not something we did. And it's not because we don't love the classics. We don't want to come across like we're some sort of like horror movie hipsters who are just like, oh, you know, it's so obvious, whatever, blah, blah, blah. It's really um, part of our desire in doing this show has been to cover sometimes things that we weren't familiar with or things we didn't know about. But we want to make sure to take the time to, to go over some of the w- things that people already know and love very well, even if that means uh, maybe retreading some ground. I mean, we're not experts or anything. I don't, we didn't do maybe all the research in the world to be like, well, here's a. I mean, Justin has done a lot of research, but. In other words, I don't think anyone listens to our classic episode, whether it's this or in the future, if we do like a Nightmare on Elm Street or a Halloween, whatever, to be like, oh, the hard business guys are going to give me that one fact that no one in 30 some years has ever (laughs) covered in any public. That's not what this is. But, um, you know, this is about our journey through horror. And the reality is, I know for me it's true, and I'm sure it's true for Justin as well. These movies are very important to us. Absolutely. uh, And so it would feel irresponsible not to cover those as well as some of the obscure, weird stuff we also enjoy covering. Also, there's a good reason to cover these movies is because they are, I I think people in our generation, you were born in what, 79? I was. So Okay, so you were born around the time Alien came out. Yeah, what when what month did Alien? Uh, June May twenty fifth, nineteen seventy nine was the world premiere. Two months before I was born. Okay, so both of us have lived our entire lives in the shadow of this movie. Yeah, that's fair. And I think it's kind of taken for granted how much of the horror archetypes come from Alien. Yeah, I think that's um, true. So it's sort of like what I want to do with this episode is not only do like a deep dive into how these movies affected us and how these movies have affected, um. 
the culture of horror and, you know, filmmaking in general. But I also want to take a step back and just really talk about how insanely groundbreaking these movies really are that people don't often think about. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's going to be a lot of stuff. This is going to be a heavy episode. There's going to be a lot of stuff that you guys probably already know. Um, just off the bat, uh, I just want to throw out some books that I read in case you're interested. Uh, there was a book called The Monster Show by David Skull. Uh, another book we've talked about a few times, Men, Men, Women, and Chainsaws by Carol Clover. Uh, shock did you, value. Did you start re- reading that? Yeah, I thought we were going to read it at the same time. I, I mean, got I, it on my to read pile. I just read it for. I just went to the index and looked up Alien, and Alien then fucking went cool through. Yeah, uh, Shock Value by Jason Snowman. Real Terror by David Clino. The Philosophy of Horror by Noel Carroll. That is a good one. I actually got that for college. Mm. And then the horror films by Peter Hutchings. I I have to say that. Uh, I feel with the um, shock value book. I love that book. I find it very compelling. Apparently, there's some pushback that some of the facts in those in that book are not accurate. Okay. I don't know. I don't know enough to say which is which, but I just remember posting about it and being like, "I really love this book." And friends who are more nerdy than me being like, "Well, he got some of the details wrong on the bliggity bloggity blue." I still think it's a compelling read, uh, and I really like it. And I would. Uh, encourage folks to check it out, but it might be worth after you read that if you finish Shock Value to get on the old internets and see what the divergent opinions are. Um, I don't know enough to say that all those divergent opinions are right and that this dude was wrong about. Again, it's not like a ton of details, but they're somewhat important details. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm not. I I'm not an expert when it comes to all the history of all these various films. But uh, that being said, I do enjoy that book and I. I have read parts of the Men, Women, and Chainsaws, but okay. I think I think one of the things we were talking about doing, I think, well, we were talking about doing it just for fun, but I think we should talk about doing it as like a Patreon thing, is Harvest's Book Club. Yes, I'd be, yeah. We should do like a chapter and do a quick recording like on each chapter of that book. I think that'd be really cool. Yeah, I'll get to it in a moment, but me and Adriana were discussing some Patreon options um, coming over from Atlantic City last night. Okay. Another thing we're going we're, we're gonna to be... Uh, Lightly touching upon that I think is a worthwhile um, read, especially if you want to look at it from a a feminist point of view, which we are going to be discussing. Um, Daniel Pimley wrote an article called Representations of the Body in Alien, Mother and the Other. Uh, I read it last night. <clears throat> it's a pretty quick read. It's not too heavy. If you're familiar with the movies, a lot of it will make sense. Uh, but it's a good read to get across uh, some feminist interpretations of alien and aliens so that being said let us go now to talk about who is bringing you this episode this episode is brought to you by our beautiful lovely supportive and lovely patreon subscribers we love you guys so much we've got some cool stuff coming up for you i I know we, we say that literally every episode and i'm using literally correctly but we do have some cool stuff in the pipelines. Liam just talked about the horror business book club. Um, I'll just say it. We might be doing a roundtable on Avengers Endgame. Yeah. Cross-pollination. I like the, that you just said that. You've already said that on recordings at look, least twice. I, I don't. I don't. I, my mind is fucking mush. I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know what my name is anymore. We appreciate everything you guys do for us. Pablo Escobar. What? That's your name. <laughs> yes. I'm, I just snorted my own body weight in cocaine before doing the show. <laughs> Uh, if you guys are interested in, in donating and helping us a little bit, uh, first off, thank you. Secondly, if you are, you want to know how to do that, just go to 
patreon.com backslash cinepunks. There's a little button there. You can subscribe one, five, ten, a hundred, whatever. Whatever you want to do. So just head on over to Patreon, check it out, throw us a uh, a little if you like, and uh, we will thank you somehow. We promise. Who else has this uh, helped us with this episode? Who who was this brought? To, who else brings you this episode? Who, who? <laughs> I like you throwing to me so you can get a drink of water. Uh, this episode is also brought to you by the fine delinquents mm-hmm. at Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations, the premier screen printing company of the Lehigh Valley area. Do you have something that you want to have screen printed? Maybe, maybe let's not even think that far ahead. Let's just say, is there something that you want to represent to the world, preferably? on your body, but not a tattoo, then what you need is a screen-printed piece of clothing, whether that's a T-shirt, sweatpants, sweatshirt, bandana, baklava, whatever it is. If you want to form a club for Mm. your love of Megadeth called Vic and the Rattleheads, you can go to fucking LVAC and get your, your Megadeth. Actually, don't do that, because Dave Mustaine will probably sue you for everything you're worth. True. Actually, no, he'd sue Chris Reject first. So go uh, definitely do that. I'm I'm saying go get your Vic and the Rattleheads um, hockey jersey made at LVAC. Maybe you want to have one of those uh, cold weather face masks that people wear when they're doing outdoor sports or hunting. Or, or lifting weights at the gym for whatever reason. Or if just like an edgelord for some reason. Yeah. Um, but, you, but you don't want just one, a general one. You want it to be a special one. But in numbers of 12 so you can sell them to your friends. Yes. Then you should go to LVAC. Yes. If you want to get face masks made for when you're moshing to Mushmouth, I'm looking at you, Josh Alvarez, <laughs> go to LVAC and get those done. And you can go check their uh, stuff out, their stuff. You can check it out at www.xlvacx.com. That's www.xlvacx.com. That sounded really weird for some reason. Oh, because the X is turned there and Chris isn't, Chris Reject isn't straight edge. That's He's what, just not straight edge. The syllables of he, Chris Reject and straight edge in the same sentence sound alien and dusty upon my tongue. He just put those X's in there. Because he's a fucking poser. <laughs> Oh man! www.xlvacx.com. So now we come to the time in the episode when I, I pause for a moment, and I gather my, I focus myself, strengthen your urethra. I look deep inside and do psychological Kegel exercises. Get in touch with your pelvic floor. I reach through the fog of uncertainty and I ask the question, Mm. Liam. Yes. What have you done recently that involves horror movies? Oh, I feel that deep in my taint, and uh, I'm ready to respond. Um, Well, if I'm going in a chronological order, right, Mm -hmm. I think i got to talk about something that you're going to have a lot more to say about as well, Mm -hmm. which was our special screening of Starfish. So much fun. March 18th, Philadelphia, PA. A chunk of people came out. A, A gaggle. Not so many that we were overwhelmed. No, it wasn't but, a horde. But far more than I think I, in my cynical heart, had expected. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, director Al White met up with us, uh, new new to Philadelphia. Um, he had never been there before. I think we did a good job of not really showing him that much stuff, but at least we went to Tattooed Moms. That he saw fine. the good parts. <laughs> I, I, we'll see. Um, <laughs> but it was cool hanging out with him. We, we got to hang out with... Uh, uh, the team ahead of time got some food with uh, uh, fellow punk uh, Josh Alvarez, fellow elder, 
Um, we got to hang out with Al a bit. Got to hang out with some awesome people who came out. Lots of people came out who we don't know. Hopefully, you're listening to the show now because of that event. A uh, good chunk of people came out that we do know. Not all of you listen to the show, but those of you who do. Thank you. Thank you for coming. We think you're great. Uh, and it was just a fun night with friends. Uh, yeah. And we even sold a couple of t-shirts. It was a good time. It was a... Uh it was just I don't know. It, I really I just love like I really love that movie, and I I love that it, it got some of the reactions that it did. Like, I, there's just I don't know. That just I can't. I I need to see the movie again. Is one of I, I want to see that movie every day. It I don't know. It's just it's just a great movie, and it was great seeing people have the reactions that they did to it. And I love that Al in the introduction was like half of you are gonna love this movie, and half of you are gonna hate this movie. I just I don't know. I, I, that that was just so tellingly charming i don't know i think a lot of people loved it i know not everybody did but that's fine um and i appreciate the people who came out and wanted to check it out uh even if they didn't like it uh we just appreciate that people wanted to be a part of of an event like that and i think it was successful enough that we're going to consider doing more things like that a big thanks to the rotunda that was a great venue if you're looking for a venue i definitely recommend it Uh, i will say getting in there is not easy. So, uh, if you want to do something at the Rotunda, I would recommend planning very far in advance because they, they're a community space. A lot of people utilize their space, so they don't have a lot of open dates on the calendar. Um, we were lucky that they were able to get us in there, um, and they were just, to me, consummate hosts. And absolutely, and that's something that's very important to me. Uh, hospitality is something I care about a lot. So, I just really appreciate them, and I want to thank them and thank everyone who posted about the event. We got a lot of support. Uh, and so I felt really good about it. I had a great night. Yeah, it was it was it was an awesome night. Hank, you saw a lot of great people, met a lot of cool people, talked about a lot of cool stuff. So thank you for that. Big ups to Yellow Vale. Uh, they're the best. Uh, we're so glad that they contacted us and let us have this event. Um, and you know we're gonna have Val on the show again because he's just so awesome. Absolutely, and getting to hang out with him was a really good time. So you know we we declare him a uh, a. Uh, uh, tangential member of of the crew you know he's 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 part of uh cinepunks europe i guess <laughs> west coast cinepunks yeah when he's, he's, like, he's, like, the, he's yeah, like the west yeah. coast avengers so, so who would be the great lake cinepunks <sighs> i mean i guess nick nick Spotcheck, right cool nick Spotcheck. you are the great lake cinepunks he's nowhere near the great lakes <laughs> where where does where's he's in uh lawrence kansas that's close enough. It's closer than we are. Yeah, that's right. I don't know. Lawrence, Kansas. That's the geographical center of the United States. Is it really? I think so. Oh, cool. That's probably why we have such a Great broad... Plain, Great Plains Avenger, Nick. That's, cause, cause Avenger. that's why we have such a broad reach across yeah. the U.S. is because Nick's there spreading our demented ideas everywhere. Our propaganda. <laughs> uh, what else did you do that involved, Har? Okay, so um, we also made a special trip as... Uh, as brothers of podcasting, to see a little movie. I don't know if y'all have heard about this. There's not a lot of buzz, but I just think if you haven't heard about it, you should probably check it out. It's a little movie called Us. Yes. By a relative unknown, Jordan Peele. I think that guy's going to do good things. I think people are getting his name out there, you know? It's weird. It's like, what? <laughs> um, Justin, what did you think of Us? I loved it. Yeah. I, I I don't I mean there's not really much I can say that hasn't been said about it already. I don't understand how people don't love this movie. I mean I, let me let me rephrase that. I understand how people don't love this movie. I get that you're allowed to not like things that I don't have a problem with. But what I don't understand is the the insistence upon well it just doesn't make any sense. 
it just doesn't make any sense. Why? Right. You know, like right. how they get there. And it's like, you're missing the fucking point. It doesn't matter yeah. why they're there, where they came from. None of that is important. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It's, it's background noise. This movie was so upsetting in so many ways that the trailer did not prepare me for. Sure. It's not just about the sort of strange, primordial, uncanny valley spawned horror of seeing your doppelganger, which is a very primitive thing, and it's been a, like a, a common theme in horror forever. Yeah. The shit that got under my skin was the way that anxiety was portrayed. Right. And the way... I cannot pronounce the actress's name. The the lead actress. Oh, Lapita Nyong'o. She's great. I love her. I think I said that. I might have said yeah. that wrong, but I think that's right. The way she struggles to explain this sort of nebulous unease that she feels right struck so close to the bone for me that I think that might have been the scariest thing in the movie about me. Just huh. that inability to frame how you're feeling and the sort of, is my partner, is my loved one, is, are my friends upset with me because I'm just being sort of this vague, crazy person and I can't explain why I'm upset? I, that that movie just really just put that in the flesh for me. Well, let me just say too, it reminded me in those aspects uh, well, let's just go ahead and say, I'm not. I don't believe in spoil. I don't. I don't want to spoil it because it's a new movie. Yeah, but I'll say to you and for people who will understand, people who are down because you've seen the movie. When it wraps up, it kind of has almost like a talented Mr. Ripley vibe. Because mm-hmm. for those of you who haven't seen it, talented Mr. Ripley is basically a movie about a liar. And as a kid who had trouble telling the truth, when I saw that movie, it made me more anxious than anything I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> because he just he just keeps being unable to be real and it keeps going wrong and he is a monster is basically that movie. Now this movie isn't exactly that, but there is a deep anxiety about being discovered, about uh about people seeing you, about realizing maybe something about yourself that you forgot in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. And all of that gave me deep anxiety that I really appreciated and thought was done very well. Uh, and I think there's some other things sort of going on in the surface there. Again, I don't want to do any spoilers. I, I will say this. There are a chunk of people who feel as if if you're going to do a movie this weird, you could actually explain it a little less than the movie does, and it would work better. The more I've thought about that, the more I think it's a not a bad criticism. Uh, I don't know if I agree because I need to rewatch it. Okay. But I remember leaving thinking like... <sighs> People are going to say this doesn't make sense and it bums them out, I think, partly because it does make an effort to explain stuff, and yes. some of it didn't need to be explained. And just from a directorial point of view, in the film, there are two very well-acted, very well-done monologues. Mm-hmm. I think that might be one too many monologues. I think maybe one really well-acted monologue would have been sufficient. I think two is just maybe asking too much of the audience because it... It's it the movie really seeks to explain a lot to make a certain point without getting into the details of how any of that works. And I think the problem there is that people think once you get into that much exposition, people are looking for everything to like click. Yeah. Whereas like with Halloween, you know, Michael Myers is basically invincible. Is, yeah. Is what, is what they're, but because we never no one stops and goes, Here, let me explain Michael Myers physiognomy to you. So well, I mean, in part six, the cult yeah, of the thorn. Yeah, exactly. And in it's part sucks. six. You yeah. know what I mean? But so I think the thing is, 
once you start to explain, that's when people start to think, oh, okay, well, now we're going to get an explanation. And the explanation in this movie, I think, is not illuminating, and I don't think it's meant to be illuminating. And I personally think, and this is just my personal opinion, but my only criticism of Jordan Peele as a filmmaker is, I think if he felt more secure in the audience, like he trusted the audience a little bit more, I think he would have said less. I think there would be the same weirdness, the same craziness, but he didn't need both of those long monologues to get to where he wanted to go. Okay. That's just my opinion. Um, I think people who are then literally being like, well, how'd they get so many scissors? It's like, oh, you know what, buddy? Let's not. <laughs> yeah. I also want to say, though, I prefer that. I do prefer the criticism of this movie to the criticism of his last movie, which now is carrying over into this movie, but I'm hearing it less than I used to, which is keep your politics out of horror. You know what, buddy? I don't like allegories. Keep your politics out of horror. Yeah. Okay, let me quote our good friend, Lit Crick Guy. He said this many times, actually, so I don't even need to cite it. But I specifically heard him say it again. Uh, in fact, I'll say this is a horror-related thing. The, the thing itself is not horror, which is that Lickrick guy was on a uh, podcast called Working People, which is uh, sort of like a leftist dude has conversations with working-class people just about their lives and what they're going through. He did an episode talking to academics, which if you're a working-class academic, that probably means you're not employed at a major university sort of people <laughs> who got their PhDs who were trying to make ends meet. Yeah. And then he did a bonus episode talking to Lit Crick guys sort of about this on like a higher kind of like uh, theory level, you know? Uh, but the reason it's horror related is that the Lit Crick guy has a great podcast called Horror Vanguard, which is kind of similar to our podcast, only it's all from a specific political angle. Like let's talk about these horror movies as related to Marxism, as related to leftist stuff, whatever, whatever. And he's just a, fun dude so he was on there and he was describing that podcast for people who didn't know you know for us someone says that's their podcast i'm like yeah cool i get that but he's explaining to this audience who maybe does are less like horror nerds why are you bringing politics into horror more like people who aren't horror fans going why is this guy who has a horror podcast on my yeah you know not that podcast but he sort of made the point i think this is true that horror is and has always been in some sense, political. Absolutely. In fact, how can you describe or show, I guess not just describe, but depict people's deepest fears and then say there's no political content there? I guess that's true if for you politics are only laws and Democrats and Republicans and that's politics. Yeah. But if politics is about power, guess what? What you're afraid of is deeply tied to how you think of power and how you think of power is deeply going to affect what you're afraid of. Yes. And that's why, you know, whatever. I was thinking there should be a shirt that just says like, uh, I would like a shirt that just said, uh, horror is political and politics are horror. I think that is like 100%. Where could you get that made shirt, that shirt made at? LVAC. Excellent. (laughs) Point being, um, hearing him, he wasn't talking about us or anything, but hearing him talk about that reminded me that when Get Out came out, there was this huge pushback that it couldn't possibly be horror because of the social content, as if horror hasn't always had some sort of sociopolitical content. Uh, I'm hearing less of that with us. In fact, my worry is that because Get Out had such a clear agenda that now people are going into us looking for like some of the deep, like I'm hearing like, uh, us is like a post-colonial critique. And I'm like, y'all, it's not that deep, man. Like, it's really, you know, we we uh, there is a part of our world that we're ignoring, and uh, there will be consequences to pay for that. Yeah, 
that's the whole thing. And people keep trying to go for something deeper or critiquing it because it isn't deeper. Like, I actually think it's just this and that's like not that deep. And I'm like, yeah, the goal was not to write a term paper. It was to make a scary movie. Yeah. Now, if you're saying the movie isn't scary, that's fine. I don't actually think every movie I think is scary, everyone else is going to find scary and vice versa. You know, like there are plenty of movies that people are like, oh, it fucked me up. And I'm like, no, I got nothing from that. So that's fine. If you didn't think us was scary, that's fine. But um, to say the the film is a failure because there's nothing deeper than what the point of the film is, is a poor, I think, a poor criticism. That's the worst criticism you can give a movie. It's the poor criticism because all he was trying to do was make a scary movie. And then as he's making a scary movie, of course, it has content. But again... It, you're telling me Rosemary's Baby doesn't have a politics. You're telling me Night of the Living Dead doesn't have a politics. You're telling me Dawn of the Dead doesn't have a, doesn't have a politics. Even Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Come on. It's fucking politics. Yeah. You know what I mean? So Every like, great horror movie is saying something. Right. Now, I think that there is the criticism that maybe this movie isn't clear in what it's saying or whatever. That's up to you. You can make that decision. But let's not pretend that horror isn't political and let's not pretend that because that just because a horror movie has an agenda, it has to be the deepest, most... Wh- the goal is not to make a term paper or yeah. to make or whatever. It is to just make a compelling movie that represents wh- how you feel about the world. That's it. And I think it was successful in that. We left the movie being stoked. Yeah. Uh, I think, like I said, I need to rewatch it. I think in retrospect, I just think there's one too many monologues from Lupita Nyong'o. On the other hand, as a director, how do you cut either of those monologues? She's so good. She's like, amazing. If you want to tell me that narratively speaking, there's too much whatever, that's fine. But that has nothing to do with her performance. She's really dang good yeah. in both those scenes. I just feel like it's it, it might be one too many. But a second watch will tell me, which I am more than willing to do because I enjoyed this movie a lot. Uh, I've been quite vocal about my favorite thing about this movie. I mean, I don't shy away from politics in movies, obviously. It doesn't bother me. I don't care that Jordan Peele wants to cast people of color instead of white people literally the last thing on my mind how could that matter doesn't matter at all um this movie stands on its own and one thing that's been bothering me is how people have kept saying that jordan peele is the next so and such such and so whatever i don't think that's fair to judge him on that i think he is a a filmmaker who has a very distinct voice yep who isn't filling any niche that was left empty by any other filmmaker. That being said, this movie reminded me a lot of something that George Romero would do. Sure. And no spoilers, not because of like a like a second act revelation of what's going on, but just in the way that it was it it it, it told a story and it was an allegory and it was a very easily digestible allegory. Like you said how it wasn't you didn't have to dig very deep to see this very clear moral lesson that he was trying to tell and I think that was something that George Romero was very adept at. I this movie at the moment is my number one movie of 2019. I think that's fair. It to be fair, neither one of us have seen the beach bum yet. So true. Touche. Once we see it. Yeah, all bets I, are off. I'm not kidding at all. I really want to see it. So yeah, there's there's not much else I can really say about this movie that hasn't been said already. Um it just I it's just excited to see what else Jordan Peele's gonna do. I agree. Uh, I do want to mention really quick, and then this is, I think, all my horror stuff, uh, and then you can talk about some of yours. Uh, I saw it a while ago, but the movie that I saw a while ago that I'm about to say, Knife Plus Heart, is finally coming out into theaters for people to see. Yes. Uh, It's coming to Lehigh Valley. Just over two weeks. Just over two weeks. Two weeks from this past Saturday. Yeah, it's a one night. 
a lot of these places is getting one night. It's it's hard to you know, it's hard to see movies. I know, and maybe you're not free that night. But if you are, if it's playing near you, go see Knife Plus Heart. It's very good. It's a uh, a fun giallo esque slasher. It's got a lot of weird, uh, sort of almost meta level jokes in it. Um, it's very gay in in the best possible way. I think. It's very much, I was listening to Linoleum Knife, a podcast I love, and uh, they were talking about it, and they said, it's a movie about the movies where um, a gay man has sex and is in danger, whether that's from disease or from literally getting killed. That's such a trope of movies in which there are gay characters where, um, uh, it's true for everyone, but you know, it was a very much a trope for gay men for a while. Gay man has sex in a movie, they're either going to get a disease and die or they're going to be murdered by someone. That's, yeah. That's inevitable. I think this is a movie in a sort of meta sense about those kinds of movies, about that fear and about getting past that fear to something else. And I think that that is really great. Um, there's, uh, It's definitely not an easy watch. Um, it's definitely, for, for those of you who are maybe more sensitive towards violence, it's definitely a violent movie just because <laughs> it's, uh, it's a movie about um, a specific uh, gay scene. Doesn't mean it's not filled with lots and lots of gory murder. So if you're like a little weird about that or you're not into it, I would you know advance caution. But I thought it was really well done. So um, again, I didn't do that recently, but you know it's one of the things that I got to see back when Brooklyn Horror Film Fest happened. That was just an idea for everybody else. Well, now you can see it. So are you going to be there for to see it uh, next weekend? Yeah, definitely. Okay, I won't. I'll be in Los Angeles. Oh. Oh no, you'll be in sunny LA. How hard for you. Yeah. I mean, you'll be in LA, so it'll probably be in a theater in LA for you to see it if you want to. Frown, maybe. <laughs> yeah, while you're out there, are you gonna go to the New Beverly? What's the Beverly? The New Beverly is the uh uh the theater uh I think maybe Tarantino owns it or something. All I'm doing theater. in Los Angeles is I'm going to the alien exhibit at UCLA, I'm going to Monster Palooza and I'm gonna hang out with Tarantulas. You should go to the New Beverly. We'll see. I'll look the schedule up for you. Don't worry. Thank you. Thank you. Anything else all related? No, I'm good. All right. I saw a hole in the ground. It was good. Oh, shit. I saw that, too. I thought it was pretty good. It was good. We talked about it. I already talked talked about about it. it. Yeah. It was was fine. It was good. Good child actor. Go see it. Uh, I went to New Jersey Horror Con yesterday with my friends, Adriana and Dave. It was really fun. I met Mark Patton, and he was a sweetheart. And then I met David Howard Thornton, and he was a sweetheart. Um, that's pretty much all I did. Let's talk trailers for a second. Oh, yes. I did want to talk about this. We you. haven't talked about the Midsummer trailer yet. Have we not? Well, that's a shame because we should talk about it. I'm excited. Yeah. So I'm, th- I'm, I mean, uh, it's hard. I, I think it's hard for him to go where he's going because I'm getting a very, um, Wicker Man vibe. Yeah, pastoral horror vibe, which I'm all in on. Yeah, but I think people are sensitive about the Wicker Man. What do you mean? They just love it. It's such a singular event, and the remake is so bad. Okay. That I think people are like, don't touch Wicker Man. Like, leave Wicker Man alone. I get that, but I think this is just an issue of if you like this guy or not. Hereditary was so good, I'm stoked on this. I think if people hated Hereditary, it's hard for them to see this trailer and be like, I'm so excited. Yeah. But I think it looks really good and upsetting, which is what I want Here's from the him. thing that's got me kind of nervous, is that he said this was a movie for perverts, or this would be the most perverted movie. Yeah, and then get you more excited? 
This is the guy who made the strange thing about the Johnsons. And he's saying this is perverted. Yeah, I'm he so excited. He didn't say that about... That makes me like fucking ill with nervousness. <laughs> Not me, baby. Fuck that. Bring it on. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely going to see it. I'm going to put myself through it. But God damn it, that gives me... A, Doesn't that trailer look so upsetting? Yeah, and I suspect that it's it's that I suspect that that's the trailer like restrained. Like I suspect that trailer is yeah. like the movie holding back from us. Yeah, that's what I like to hear. And finally, I want to talk about the trailer briefly for The Dead Don't Die. It's like a zombie goof movie. I mean, let's be clear. It's Jim Jarmusch. Yes. So it's a goof, but it's a Jim Jarmusch goof, which means, you know, understated, sort of dry, lots of very like not reacting to things. I'm pretty stoked on it. It'll be good. Are you excited about the trailer or no? Yeah, I'm excited. You're kind of whatever because it's a zombie movie? I to be honest, yeah. I mean, it, it's I'm sort of like over new zombie stuff at this point, so but I mean, I'll watch anything that doesn't take itself too seriously. I mean, don't get me wrong. Um I get what you're saying. My issue uh is sort of similar like, okay, who cares anymore about, you know, zombies whatever but it is jim jarmusch so yeah i just feel like if anyone's gonna do it in a fun interesting way and maybe that's sort of part of the point for him is like let's do something that everyone is sort of sick of but yeah. i'm gonna do my thing on it so i don't know i'm stoked on it but you know if, if someone's like oh i don't know i know i'm not gonna judge anyone for that I, I get it yeah all right so i guess we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back we are gonna crack open the fucking sweet honey pot that is Ridley Scott's 1979 horror Sweet. classic, Alien. Sweet honey pot. We'll be right back. We'll be right back. To talk about Alien. Alien. Released on May 25th, 1979. Directed by Ridley Scott. Written by Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Chusett. You might know Dan O'Bannon. He directed a little movie called Return of the Living Dead. 
And some of his other writing credits include Screamers, Invaders from Mars, and Life Force. Those are the only movies he did. Stop it. Yeah, and he's he's done a few other few other things. Uh starring Tom Skerritt, Sigourney Weaver, Veronica Cartwright, Harry Dean Stanton, John Hurt, Ian Holm, Yafit Kato, and Bolaji Bodembo Bodejo as the Xenomorph. Where do we start with this movie? Um I'll start with uh uh Dan O'Bannon and say uh part of the reason this movie exists is because Dan O'Bannon worked on Yodorowsky's Dune. Okay. And when that shit fell through, and then he got hit up to work on this movie, he just took the entire creative team from Dune. Just were like, hey guys, you want to keep working together? I got this other thing. It's aliens. You'll like it. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I don't say that to take away from him, uh, even though that team was mostly put together by Yodorowsky. He was the one smart enough to be like, well, I don't know. This team's pretty good. Was Geiger a part of that team? Oh, yes. Okay. Geiger and uh, the French, whatever the French guy is. I always forget his name. Um, comic book artist. A lot of people. There was like three or four people that were involved with Dune that ended up on Alien. And a lot of the designs are similar. Like the the alien spaceship. Yeah, the derelict ship. It's very similar to what his designs were for the Harkonnen ships. Oh, really? Geiger did all the designs for the Harkonnen ships. In fact, there's like a giant head ship for one of the Harkonnen ships on Geiger's design. Mm. And the mouth would open up and the tongue would come out. And then ships would fly off of the tongue. I can fuck with that. It was a whole thing. Geiger had a whole bunch of weird shit for doing Geiger is a fucking crazy person. I mean, look. If you are really into a black, sleek shiny, drippy things, mostly cocks, Yeah, then you're probably stoked on Geiger. It's funny. Um, I have a couple of really good. They're all released by Titan, like the Alien Vault, uh, Aliens, the, be like the set photography of the movie Aliens, and the it's, there's another thing, like the Alien. It's a huge, it's a gigantic book, a hardcover book. And... What's funny is that what we actually end up seeing in the movie is so restrained from what Geiger wanted to do. Oh, yeah. Because Ridley Scott was like, you're not fucking putting that in my movie. Right. Like the, um, and it's great reading about his like justifications for it too. Uh, for example, there's the, so if you don't know what this movie's about, fuck you. Yes, we should. We, no, we should back up. Okay. This film is... Stick a pin in what we are just talking about. This film is a sort of the classic, we're caught in a ship with a thing that wants to kill us. There we go. That's it. That's the movie. I mean, that's really what the movie is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, you know, they, they go to a mysterious planet. They discover uh, these eggs that have these things that attach to their face. Guy has it attached to his face. He wakes up. He seems okay. Alien baby bursts out of his chest. Alien proceeds to murder everyone. There it is. Sigourney Weaver gets away by the the you know skin of her butt, her underwear. <laughs> so, what's funny about this is when Geiger was like designing these um, these aliens, he had the design for the Xenomorph in one of his works of art, Necronomicon Four, I believe it was. And really, Scott was like, "That's what I want." And one of the things I was talking about earlier is you know you, you want to take a step back and really think about how radical this movie was is having grown up and lived my entire life in the shadow of this movie, I've never really thought about how 
fucking weird. Sure. That design is. Yeah. Doesn't have eyes. No. You know, and this was like a you know, you're coming from like a genre where like the eyes are like googly eyes or whatever, and this thing just has no eyes. And when Geiger was like creating it, he made the egg, and originally in the movie the egg has like it's like a four lobed mouth that like opens up and the fucking face sucker pops out. Geiger wanted to have a very vaginal opening. And he like drew it and he's like, Look, look at my egg. And Ridley Scott was like, You're not fucking putting that in the movie. He's like, Don't be a coward, Ridley. Like he was literally saying, like, be a man about this and put that in the fucking movie. And Ridley Scott was like, No, that's disgusting. Yeah, no, Geiger was actually it's a crazy too much. person. But then my favorite part was how then he was like, fine. And he redesigned it and he claims that the four lobes is a criticism of the Catholic Church, because it's a cross and that's vomiting out horrors upon the world, which is not true. And Geiger's an insane person for thinking that, but I still love it. I don't think he's wrong. <laughs> I mean, who knows? I mean, have you seen... Uh, spend a little bit of time. If you're someone listening to this and you're casually familiar with Alien and you don't know a lot about H.R. Geiger, just spend a little bit of time looking at some of his art you can on get, the internet. I, I have a coffee you get table. get a real weird feeling about it. I, I have a coffee table book of his art, and it's all like... The xenomorph is one of the least upsetting things that is like. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. All of his. It's funny. We talk about um, Carrie Hen, who played Newt in Aliens, was saying uh, about the set of Alien, which was also Aliens, which was based on Geiger's artwork. She was like, it was just a lot of penises and vaginas everywhere. Like right. that's all it really right. is is just sex. The whole movie is about fucking. Yeah. Yes, it's all sex and plastic. That's sort of got, and you know, even when you go like there was a, a interview with Geiger in that Jodorowsky's Dune movie, and they're at the Geiger Museum in Germany, which is basically his house, and it's all black pleather and yeah. and and sexuality, but in its most sort of extreme form you know there's no softness in geiger's art no no and that comes across in this movie like this movie uh there's a deep anxiety we have about what we're gonna find when we leave this planet uh and i think that comes from this feeling that i mean it only in the sense reminds me of lovecraft is that it's tied into this idea that the universe might be essentially hostile okay because in this film, right, they don't go to a planet where there are, it's not a colonialist movie and that it's like, well, we're civilized colonists and we go to someplace ready to interact as civilized people. Yeah. But these horrible natives attack us. Oh, these no. Aren't, these aren't natives. No. These, these... And, and not only that, they've already, these are creatures that have already destroyed another, at least ship, if not whole civilization. For yeah, all yeah. I know, of folks who look to be way more advanced than we are yeah like, don't even don't even bring prometheus or, or no that's, yeah. like just ignore that mythos and understand that when they find this derelict ship it's very clear that these the xenomorphs have been this sort of like intergalactic swarm of fucking locuses just right. laying waste to everything and that we have no idea like yeah that ship speaks to a history that we don't know we know just enough to get hurt yeah and that's sort of the that is that is one of the underlying anxieties of sci-fi horror, right? That throughout time, humans know just enough to get fucked. Yeah, yeah. Just enough for us to be like, oh, no, what do we do? Oh, oh, God. All right. And then that's added on top to it, I think, 
and I guess we'll get we'll get more into this, but I think that is made even more so by the implied corporate economic implications of the story. Yes, um, it's interesting that you brought up Lovecraft because one of Dan O'Bannon, despite this movie is you know very heavily influenced by Lovecraft, right? Um, Dan O'Bannon actually made it a point to explicitly tackle Lovecraft's quote-unquote monster problem. Because okay. you read Lovecraft a lot of the time, and it's like, and then he averted his eyes for what he saw could not be described. And it's a, lo- it's a problem where H.P. Lovecraft will write these stories, but when it comes to actually describing the monster, he does so in these, the vaguest possible terms, if, if he describes it at all. Right. And when they were looking for a creature design, Dan O'Bannon's goal was to take something that was so literally alien in the very definition of the word and to put it in the flesh. And when they saw Necronomicon 4, they saw this painting of this creature that, that Geiger had done. That creature design was actually the one thing that the executives and the creative team behind Alien saw of Geiger's and were like, take that and just make it real. They yeah. didn't alter it. They didn't change anything. Like they changed. There were certain things like some of this, there, there was um a, originally they weren't supposed to find a derelict ship. Yeah. Originally, they were supposed to find a, an abandoned temple that had been dedicated to worshiping these things. And they were like, no, no, that doesn't really work. So change that. And then that became the fucking weird crescent derelict ship. But that design of the xenomorph, that weird, genderless, um, sort of asexual, masculine and feminine creature that we see, that was untouched. That was all... Geiger and then Dan O'Bannon and Ridley Scott were like, that's fucking perfect. That is that is exactly what we need. I think it definitely solves the problem that O'Bannon was was looking to solve in in in, in overcoming the, you know, shitty vagueness of Lovecraft's fiction that when it came to describing the antagonists of the, of the stories. I want to talk about some of the themes behind this, like the idea of the whole story being an like an allegory or a criticism of sex. Okay, let's talk about that. Um, I read in the the Pimley how he described this movie is sort of um, it's very it's it's not sex positive for lack of a better phrase. Sure. Uh, his argument was that the way the alien gains access to the ship, yeah. which if you've seen the movie, you know it the facehugger attacks uh, John Hurt's character. The criticism there is that John Hurt's character was so eager to go out there. He's like volunteers to go out there. He is the most curious one. He's the most adventurous one. And he is the one who was essentially, uh, for lack of a better term, and I apologize, uh, raped. Okay. And then it is everyone around him who is left to deal with the consequences of this, of this rape. And then the whole movie, you know, Pimley was saying that the chestburster scene, it represents a disgust by the idea of birth. Like that scene huh. is framing birth in the worst possible ways. I don't think that was O'Bannon's, I think he was just like, that. wouldn't it be cool if a fucking alien popped out of his chest? Uh, I don't think the phallic design of the alien does anyone any, any favors, but I, I do like the idea of this movie weighing heavily upon male fear of female biology. Sure. Of birth, um, I think that this movie, you know, the way that Kane is attacked, John Hurt's character is attacked and impregnated, I think that might prey upon male insecurities of how they might be victims of sexual assault. Um, and then I think the violence, the scene where 
you know, the chestburster emerges might, I guess, uh, be representative of, you know, male anxiety about birth. I'm going to be honest. It's always kind of creeped me out. I'm, I'm not a very, sure. I'm not a fan of like icky stuff. Sure. Um, and then just the, oh, the, uh, the the way the creature approaches a lot of especially the scene at the the scene towards the end when it when it when it attacks um Yafikado and Veronica Cartwright there is a, a weird creepy sexual aspect of how the creature approaches her sure in the sense that it's like very slow she's crying she's begging not to be hurt and it almost like moves up on her and you see its tail go up behind her and the movie does i think rely upon uh, themes of sexuality going horribly wrong and not just because the whole movie looks like a fucking giant surrealist penis. Do you have any thoughts on the matter about <laughs> sex? I like how you're like, I read this thing and I think it's interesting. No, that's, I mean, think about that? it's, no, it's, it, that's something that, I mean, obviously I've, I've always read about, especially the idea of, you know, the face hugger representing like male rape. I mean, it is, uh, it is very invasive the face hugger thing is very creepy mm-hmm. and um it's hard not to see it you know the face hugger is all hands and tail mm-hmm. which are you know very grabby and gross and then this like inward hidden sort of injector in which it you know puts itself inside of you especially they don't really show it too much in this one because you don't really see much of it but if yeah. you watch aliens when they when the marines get to um hadley's hope and they find the facehuggers in the tank. And there's this scene where Paul Reiser goes up to it and the fucking facehugger like comes to life and attacks the glass. And you see its proboscis. That looks like a vagina on the end of a dick. It's really disgusting. It's weird. It's it's weird. I mean, so I will I will say, um, I think what is probably most directly intended is a kind of body horror, which kind of makes sense, I think, with O'Bannon and some of his other work too, is is this like uh making this scariness very biological and connected to us and whatever. And then if you're dealing with bodies and then your art designer is Geiger, it's going to be... Everything he does is phallic. And we've already sort of said this jokingly, but in reality, I mean, look at the aliens. Their heads are penises. Their fingers are very long and look like they're going to pierce you. They have wieners and then they have coming a out giant, of the back. And they got a giant dick tail that and they a fucking can use tongue. To, and then yeah, that's what I was gonna say. And then they have a dick in their mouth. It's a dick with a mouth on the end. It's what comes out of their mouth. So everything about them is about uh, insertion in yeah. every way, designed that way on purpose. I mean, that's that's not a that's not like a joke. That's not like Geiger doesn't know what he's doing. It all represents that. But then all of the angles are very smooth and soft and and whatever. I think, in a way, the alien is both sort of uh, visually male and female. There are aspects of it that represent femininity, but then every violent aspect of it represents phallicness, and I think the combo of that imagery makes it upsetting. And then you put it in this space station, or spaceship, everything is... I mean, that space station is like all the technology is like off-putting, and it, it's dirty. But it used to be sort of like a like a sterile white. It's the been, used future look. Yeah, and um, I think it is telling that there's this. I mean, we'll get into this more, but I think putting that within the context of these sort of uh, working class kind of people, they're like basically working class astronauts. Like, yeah, they're we're space, out in space, but we're doing our thing, whatever. Yeah. We're, we're getting our bonuses, you know? Like, yeah, oh, let me talk to you about the bonus. Yeah, yeah, there's this whole thing to that. 
Um, yeah, there's a lot of the alien coming up behind people. That's like a real thing. It's about a fear, not of intimacy, not of sex. It's a fear of penetration because that's how yeah. this thing attacks. The facehugger penetrates the mouth, the fucking chest explodes, and then the alien's way of attack is penetrating with the mouth. Yeah. I think that's all there. I think it's... Uh, you could also make commentary just sort of about Ripley as a character and her sort of like strong uh, presence and, you know, her with a cat fighting off the yeah. evil penis. I think that's all. I think there's a lot to that, actually. It's also worth noting that this entire movie is kicked off because the computer picks up the signal and sends the crew to LV-426. Do you know what the name of the computer is? Mother. There you go. By the way, the mother room is so weird. It's so weird. It's just lights everywhere. Yeah. So we also have this... This is all... This entire movie is technically happening within Mother. Right. And they rely upon Mother. And then there's the scene at the end when Ripley is trying to do like the self-destruct se- sequence. And she... It goes past like... The thing the, the computer is telling her, like, you have up until there's five minutes left to like abort, and she can't. And then she's screaming, like, Mother, you fucking bitch. So it's like, right. it's this, it, it's again, I don't mean to, I mean, no, fuck it. I do mean to dive deep into this. There is this constant screaming at this sort of quasi feminine thing, this unfathomable feminine thing, whether it be the alien or whether it be this distant computer that right. has enveloped you. These characters are constantly dealing with their perceived feminine threat. Yeah, I mean, even the women on the ship are 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 you know beautiful women, but very like strong. There's no like soft sort of you know very femme character. No, I I think I think the closest you could come to it is, um, I think Veronica Cartwright's character comes closest to being a quote unquote damsel in distress. Right, but. I don't think she's unreasonably distressed. Like that, no. that's the thing is like she's the one who um she's not like, oh, I need saving to give the character credit when they're like, Well, here are our choices. We either kill it or we get the fuck out of here. And she's like, I vote we get the fuck out of here. Like this is the most reasonable thing anyone says in the entire movie is let's just jump on the fucking shuttle and, and get out of there. Like she does present this certain, like, not cowardice. And not over... I mean, she does get emotional when she's being threatened, which is completely reasonable. But she has this... Um, and I mean, Ripley does too. There's this like weird, almost calculating and unfeeling... You know how Veronica Cartwright says, like, oh, there's there's three of us and there's only one for two. We draw straws. Like, that's what's going to happen. And then early in the movie when Ripley's like, oh, that uh, Kane's infected... He's got to stay out there. Quarantine. We got to stick to the quarantine. There's this like adherence to rules that I you don't often see with with female characters in a lot of movies. Like they're sure. they're portrayed as weak and unreasonable. When these two characters are per se, portrayed as, if you look at it, fatally reasonable. Well, I will say that the I also think that beat though of her wanting to quarantine them is partly there for us to immediately start to not trust the. The character who turns out to be an android, I uh, uh, Ash, Ian yeah. Holmes' character. Yeah, that that's the first sign you get that you're like, well, don't like that guy. <laughs> I don't know what his deal is, but I don't trust him. Yeah, um, and it, you know, it turns out to be a whole thing. I think it's it's hard because um, I think this is a film that lends itself to a lot of different sort of interpretations. I really like 
this, like all this sort of uh, sexuality and body sort of stuff. Yes. Um, I also think there's just this inherent thing going on, which we sort of talked about. It's present in the other movies, but I think it's the most present in this movie, which is sort of the the corporate, you know, I, I mean, l- let's be clear. The future, even if you take in the whole mythos, including the crappy recent movies, this is still a terrible future. This is a, a future of corporate oligarchs oh my who, God, rule, yeah. who rule our lives. And in this film, it's, I mean, notice what they keep saying, too, about the bonuses and, and the shares. These are people who aren't sure they're going to get paid what they need to live. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they're sleeping on a ship for months at a time. Like, for, you know, this this very easily was probably a year of their lives doing whatever this mission was, which doesn't even sound that fucking important. Um, and the corporation is more than willing to be like, there's a there's a thing out there. We don't know what it is. It might be alien life. Who knows? We'll sacrifice all y'all to get at that. Explicitly. Explicitly. It's not like casual. It's the actual instructions are to sacrifice them yeah. to get this thing. Get the life form back. All other concerns are secondary. Yeah. That is the exact quote from the movie. It's And so I think, the, you know, between their portrayal and, you know, these highly skilled I mean, really, the, I mean, the, the first assumption that is made, to me, is a very sort of leftist assumption, which is that as precious as astronauts are now, trust me, eventually this will be a shit job. Yeah. And that's true of anything. If you can think of there, there, anywhere in the world, there is some job right now that you, let's say you, much like uh, myself... Well, that's not true. I wasn't really, but I have tendencies this way. You're a soft bourgeois type. And if you think of some job that you think, well, that job is fine, I respect it, but it's not what I would want to do. Yeah, yeah. Chances are that job at some point was a skilled, respected thing yeah. that over time, capitalism has helped us say, that's a shit job for shit people. Yeah. Why do we assume astronauts wouldn't fucking be that? I mean, it's we're, we're moving that way with something like computer programming, like something that originally was like, if you know, in the 80s, if you were like, oh, I do computer programming. You're a like, sorcerer. Oh, you're a fucking genius. Yeah. You, must be, you must be a fucking near genius. And we're going to point out where it's like, look, any asshole can type buttons. Yeah, exactly. If they exactly. do it wrong, then fucking fire them. Like it's, it's becoming, in certain ways, harder to get into that world unless you can prove you have some super extraordinary thing if not you're just a jack off in a in a in a cubicle yeah that's what this movie sort of shows us about astronauts in 1979 when astronauts were still like fucking magic yeah when they were like <laughs> like yeah. jesus christ we send superheroes these are like the avengers we're sending them in, into space to do magical superhero shit and this movie's like yeah but it's only a matter of time before the worst of the worst you know the the people are up there and like the film makes it clear that some of these people smell. Just looking at them. Oh my like, god! I, I said it. I, I, I the scene in the in the, in the opening scene when it shows like the 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 the, the fucking cockpit or the captain's bridge or whatever. Yeah. When I was a kid, my dad used to work at this chemical plant right. over in Jersey, and I remember being maybe four or five years old, and my mom and I would go over there sometimes and have lunch with him. And his break room had this. This was in like the 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 mid to late eighties. And every time I watch this movie, I think that the bridge of that smells like the break room of my dad's work. Like old coffee, cigarette machines, old food, like not like rotten food, but like the ghosts of food that's been cooked. Like, you know, 
what 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 is it uh, the like linoleum that's been like out in the sun for too long right all these like dust all these like smells and it's such like a like space travel is like a step away from magic right now but in this movie these people are like ugh we're traveling the alpha centauri fuck this like these people could not give a fuck less about the magic of space travel and what's even more fucked up is when the the, the two most blue collar characters in the entire movie yeah. are Harry Dean Stanton yeah. and Yafit Kato. Yeah. They're the guys who are like, where are bonuses at? Yeah. Where are the bonuses? We need to, like, Yafit Kato, you might know from Across 110th Street. Yes. And Final Nightmare. Yes. Or Freddy's Dead, yeah. These two guys are the most blue collar characters in the movie. And when Mother wakes them up and is like, you got to go investigate this fucking ship. And they're like, no, that's not our fucking job. We're space truckers. We're not investigators Tom Skerritt imme- or is it Tom Skerritt or Ian Holm who immediately I'm gonna say it's Ian Holm because he's a fucking robot and knows this shit breaks out their contract and the fine print is like you have to investigate this according to clause B, C, and F or you forfeit the shares of your of your company and the fact that that was in the fine print of their contract just fucking reeks of like exploitating oh 100% exploiting laborers I mean the, you get the feeling from this movie that the this corporation I mean, this is literally a, a fucking transport ship. Yeah. But the corporation's like, look, we don't know what we're going to find out there. Every single guy, I don't care if their job is to clean the goddamn toilets, we're going to use them to get whatever we need to out there. They're, they are, they could be shanghai basically they're shanghai into doing whatever the fuck we want them to do. Yeah. And that's just how it's going to be. Like, uh, this is, uh, uh, the movie never says it, but you know this is a world without unions. Yeah. Very possibly a world without voting. Uh, aliens suggest that th- that the major sort of she you know this horrible event happens. She survives. I mean, we'll get this as aliens, but I just want to bring it up. The only consequences we see is a review if she gets to keep her her you know pilot's license. That's it. And it's worth noting that the only mention of the actual human casualties at that meeting are when they show their pictures on a slideshow. They don't have to say their fucking names. No, all they talk about is. You know, you blew up 250 million tons of ore. That was 250 million by today's standards. Yeah. It's crazy. And so, I, I again, it's in Aliens. I think we'll get to it, but I think Aliens becomes about something else and we lose the, the thread of that. But I do think Alien, not only does it also have all this awesome sex stuff you were talking about that I think is really upsetting <laughs> and, and really important to how the movie functions, I also think it has this like real... Um, the powers that be will sacrifice us for fucking anything. Absolutely. And I think that that is important. So a lot of space exploration film or space exploration narrative kind of breaks down into a few different areas. Uh, one is a lot of them are related to colonialism because whenever we, I mean, just keep in mind, whenever you talk about an explorer in a historical sense, that that is a, almost 100% an exploration. Like, that is an oppressor. Yeah. That we went to those places to steal their shit. Yeah. In some way, shape, or form. All you need to know about that is Columbus writing. You know, there's not a lot of stuff here, but they'll make great slaves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're real passive. They didn't even fight us when we got here. So we should probably enslave them. That'd be good. Yeah. Um, And so a lot of space movies tend to be that question of, like, we're going to go into that place and either we're going to have a good interaction that benefits us, we're going to have a bad one where they try to eat us, whatever it is, you know, there's that colonialist mindset underneath. And this film really shows you that's not what this fucking shit is about. This is a movie about working people and the willingness of a literal faceless 
being. You know, a literal, you know, the, the corporation isn't present. They don't even name it in this movie. Even even the people who are supposedly there representing the corporation aren't human, it turns out. Yeah. Turns out the, the lackey of the corporation is a robot anyway. Yeah. There's no human face to this thing. There's the mother, which is just a room with a bunch of lights. <laughs> just a fucking bunch of lights. And whenever you ask it any questions, it just is like, well, I don't know. It speaks on a screen. Yeah. Uh, and then a robot, a trick, a Trixie robot who you didn't know was a, was a robot, yeah. and he's there to fuck you up. Who tries to kill Ripley by penetrating her mouth with a magazine? Another phallic symbol. Yes. Um, so I think the the that is what I think makes this movie. Besides what we're going to get into, which is that the filmmaking is basically perfect. Um, the the resonance thematically throughout the movie is you have this combo of a economic critique, uh, a, a sort of class consciousness with this obvious sexual stuff, which again, I think it's possible that no one writing the script was thinking so much about sexuality. You know, it's there, but it maybe whatever. But you can't have a penis monster without having that be an important part of what the film yeah. is. And 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 I'm I'm more than willing to believe that it happened organically. That they they see the creature, they say that's what we want, creature, they make it, then as they're working with it, they go, I don't know guys, it's it's really phallic. Like we should probably yeah. just go with this feels like the right thing to do. Well it feels like the right thing to do because it's a cock monster. That's why you 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 block the scene this way because it's a it's a it's a monster cock is yeah. what we're dealing with. It's also worth noting when it comes to how little this company gives a fuck about their employees. Yeah. How many people are on the ship? Serious question. What is it? Nine? Eight? Six people. Six people. Well, seven if you count Ash. Yeah. How many people do the, how many people does the fucking lifeboat hold? Two. <laughs> <laughs> you better you better have really given up all hope by the time you're getting Or murdered that. five of the other people on that ship. Like, can you imagine, okay, can you imagine, to put this in the frame, if the Titanic was sinking, and there was, like, what, 3,000 people in there, and they got to the lifeboats, and they're like, sorry, guys, we only got room for 1,000, so draw straws, fight, do something. Oh, my God. It just, it says that these people are, at the end of the day, to the corporation which i'm assuming is the Wayland yutani they're just another resource yeah they are a means to an end and not an end of themselves an end of themselves which is at the end of the day the basic critique of critique of capitalism is that it right. treats people as just another resource so, oh man i think there's oh, so much to say about that i do want to you know we've talked a lot about all these themes let's just sort of get into um uh this movie spends a lot of time creating atmosphere yes the whole first part of the movie before they get to this beacon it's just about establishing the world we're in the characters who are with us in this world what life is like then we get to the planet and even then i guess you can't say like shit pops off but like we have our narrative when he comes back with the drawn on his face then we're 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 in a story now. Yeah. Um but all that stuff is so necessary. It's it's for a movie this, you know, this is a 1979 sci-fi movie and it moves for the first 20 30 minutes like a 1979 sci-fi movie. Yeah. And yet I don't think there's a single unnecessary moment. No, this movie is perfectly efficient. 
it's crazy how good it is. And it's crazy how, you know, this is a film in which all we have is a tall guy in a rubber suit. That's what Alien is. Mm -hmm. And it's still effective. You know, I'd say the one sort of special effectsy moment at the very end is the only moment where I'm like, oh, yeah. When the ship blows up. Yeah. Yeah, it looks a little wonky. Yeah, that's the only part, you know, even like, just the stuff in the movie like sure the technology is that classic kind of retro technology but only when you see a computer screen does it really stick home like okay we're in the we're in a different time yeah yeah because you know in the future we believed in the 70s we would travel across galaxies before there'd be a touch screen yeah like, a touch screen was some crazy magic thing that no one was ever going to have yeah let alone graphics that wasn't a thing either um but yeah, except for those few moments like that, which to me had character. I love that that that, that yeah. stuff is like that. Um, it is still effective now. Having watched it multiple times, I'm still like, oh, okay. And oh, I'll, God. I'll say this about this movie before we get into some some of the more, uh, I guess, our favorite scenes or whatever. One of my criticisms when I watched Prometheus and Covenant, one of the things that fell short for me was I couldn't identify with any of the characters at all. I felt nothing sure. for any of those characters, yeah. even the people we're supposed to be rooting for. In this movie, every single character you feel something for. Every there's no throwaway deaths. Every single death is like a fucking hammer that hits you. Every single character is so likable. There's this, you know, when they're when they're doing the when they're they're eat, they're they're when they first wake up and they're at their they're having their breakfast or whatever, and there's just this really genuine banter that is so lacking in 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 you know, Scott's later entries to the alien saga. And then, you know, it's like when everyone, when, when each person dies again, it, you don't, there's no red shirts. There's no throwaways. It's when John Hurt dies, it really, it, no pun intended, it hurts. And, you know, when Tom Skerritt gets like attacked in the, in the, in the vent, there's something there. And, you know, when Harry Dean Stanton dies and especially when this, the, the, the death that, that hits, we'll talk about the chestburster scene shortly. The death that, that gets me the most that really truly breaks my heart is when Veronica Lambert dies at the end. Uh, when her and Yafa Kato die. Yeah. Cause we sort of see Yafa Kato die. You know, you see like the, the fucking, the, the head bite with the tongue and it's upsetting. Cause again, these are all characters that like, there's no characters where you're like, Oh man, I can't wait for that guy to die. I can't wait for that guy to die. You're like, man, these, these are like likable, like everyday people. But the scene where Veronica Cartwright dies is so, upsetting and heartbreaking and I can't say it's graphic because you don't see anything but all we see is the alien approaching her her reaction and then it cuts to Ripley running down a hallway as she hears Veronica Lambert getting killed in some unseen way over the intercom we hear Veronica Cartwright like choking and screaming and whatever and that is such a bit of directorial magic how we're hearing the murder and not actually seeing it. And it's sort of focusing on Ripley's inability to get there in time. That just makes it, I just, just a tremendously, uh, it's like a gut punch in a good way. It, it's not like, it's not like it, it didn't, it, it doesn't leave me like, Oh man, I feel like I'm going to go to bed and you know, it's eight, eight thirty at night, but it, it, it's just a powerful scene. And we get there and one of the reasons it is so powerful is because we get there throughout the whole movie, this character building, the camaraderie that's built between these people, the building of, of, of atmosphere and the building of the, the relationships between these two people. 
it pays off and when when these characters die it actually makes you feel something and that was something that you know i couldn't even name any any of the characters in prometheus or alien covenant i don't know and i don't care because none of that none of that attention to detail and character building was put into those later movies um yeah i i think you're right these characters immediately connect i mean it, luckily it's a small i think it helps that it's a small cast yeah. they can all be connected the only the only person who wasn't part of this sort of like group that got to know each other was of course uh our man who played the alien that he yeah. was kept separate and they they weren't allowed to see the dailies of the alien mm-hmm. and you know all that stuff um but there it's re- i mean if you were like who are the characters in covenant right now i'm like uh uh guy pierce is in it right and uh there's the yelly irish guy he yelled that's in prometheus uh, Oh right, Prometheus. See, that's what I'm saying. Uh, is it just Elba in Prometheus? I don't know. <laughs> Jesus Christ. The point is, is like you can't possibly care. And there are, there are people who love those movies, um, and I don't want to say that they're liars, but they seem like liars to me. <laughs> they love those movies. Yeah. Plus, if a ring is falling, just run in a different direction, and you'll be okay. That's how rings work. What was that? Oh, is that the end of Prometheus? Yeah, when the ship is when falling. The, yeah, when the derelict ship, yeah. Yo, just turn turn the other direction. No, just turn the other. Oh, okay, never mind. Uh, I want to talk about something that I, I brought. Yeah, Idris Elba's in, in, in uh, Prometheus, so I'll say I would at least have sex with Idris Elba. That's <laughs> Fair about, enough. That's about it. That's all I can care about in that movie. Um, I had said to Liam the night we watched this that, you know, there's always the question of, like, if you had a time machine, what would you do? I'd go back and kill Hitler. I'd go back and... Watch my mom and dad have sex. Gross. I don't Who know. Says that. I don't know. The the hypothetical redneck in my head. Oh Jesus Christ! What I would do? I would go back in time to May twenty fifth, nineteen seventy nine, and will myself to forget that I had seen this movie. Sure. And sit in the back of the audience and fucking watch this shit unfold. Specifically, and again, I know this is not my. I I had said that the Veronica Cartwright's death is, I think, the most upsetting death in this movie. Yeah. But we have to talk about the technical masterpiece that is the chestburster scene and how Ridley Scott shot that. Oh, it's unbelievable. It's absolute insanity. Yeah. I couldn't find any real sources, any confirmation that Yafakato suffered a minor heart attack, but that is a rumor that's floating around the internet. I do know for certain, though, and I found that several sources, including people who were on set, Veronica Cartwright passed out during that scene. The scene when John Hurt, uh, just a little background, no one knew it was going to happen. Basically, Ridley Scott, in the script, it was like, uh, Kane falls on table, Kane thrashes around, creature emerges, it has teeth. And I'm like, okay, cool, let's let's shoot the scene. And Yafakato said his first hint should have been when he walked on the set that day, and all the crew members were wearing ponchos, and there was fucking, all the cameras had tarp over me. He was like, huh, interesting. <laughs> And then this fucking scene happens, and when the chestburster pops out, you hear Veronica Cartwright yelp because the blood hit her. Completely accidental, too. And then she fainted because no one knew it was going to fucking happen. And Ridley Scott's direction, when it first popped out, he was like, all right, guys, now get closer. When you hear that, and like the, like, of like the wishbone cracking, uh-huh. and then he stops for a second, and then he made him get closer and then they made the fucking thing pop out and everyone on the set just fucking lost their shit. <laughs> like, I, again, I cannot find confirmation that Yafakato had a heart attack, <laughs> but it is on record. 
he was treated because his heart rate was like through the roof and he had to go to his room. He was like, I cannot do He was not young at this point. No, he was like in his 40s when I think they made this movie. Oh, it's for well, I don't know. He's still alive, so it's hard to say. Yeah, but the fact remains is that this was so uh, this was so upsetting to the people who made this movie that one of them lost consciousness. <laughs> and I would have loved to have been there opening night when that scene happened, just to see how people react in theaters. Because even even now, when you watch it, the build up again, because it, it, it goes from it's this weird violent shift of tone. Because if you haven't seen this movie. Kane has just woken up and he's like, he's being all jolly and he's like drinking his water and they're like, all right, we're going to get back. Going to put you in hypersleep. All right, this fucking weird thing that's attached to your face is dead. You want something to eat? Let's get something to eat. Tom Scarrett's like, hey guys, dinner's on me. And they're all eating. And then just like Yafikado's like making a joke and John Hurt just coughs like once. And he's like, you okay, man? And he coughs again. He's like, I know the food ain't that bad. And then just shit hits the fucking fan where they all start freaking out and it's insane how fast it ramps up because it goes from this if you haven't seen this movie before and i keep saying that but it goes from this there's this idea that this thing is attached to his face and all of a sudden the thing falls off and he's awake and okay and it gets you to drop your guard for just a second and then there's the joyful goofy camaraderie and then it just fucking yanks you out of that and this thing just pops out of his chest and it's every time i watch it it's just this glorious sequence um, that was later spoofed in Mel Brooks's classic Spaceballs, also starring John Brooks, Very which great. is one Very of the great. greatest comedic sequences of all time. Uh, how do you feel about the chess person? Does he, does he sing Hello, My Baby in that? What does the alien sing in, in Spaceballs? I think it's Hello, My Baby. Yeah, Hello, My Baby. While Hello. John Hurt is going, not again. <laughs> okay. Um, it's So here's the thing with the chestburster scene, and I think this is... Uh, just the reality of who we are and the world that we live in. It cannot possibly have the effect on us that it did when it was playing in the theater in 1979. No. By the time I saw the chestburster scene, I'd fucking seen a chestburster scene. I already knew what it was, yeah. I'd seen pictures. I'd seen it spoofed. I'd seen... but I mean, I, so... I, I saw probably aliens... We didn't really talk about our history with this. I, no. I probably saw aliens, the theatrical cut. Okay. Well, the TV cut, which we learned has aspects of the director's yes. cut in it. I saw this TV cut of Aliens probably no less than 20 times before I finally sat down to watch Alien. Same here. Uh, and by the time I sat down to watch Alien, it was already late in my sort of film life. I should have seen it by that point. Um, but I think it was freshman year in college that I was like, Really? I need to finally watch Alien. Yeah. After having watched Aliens, a million times. Oh, man. And, and this is why now, and we'll get to this at the end, why I very vehemently above the alien over aliens opinion because I was into aliens so much before I saw Alien, I kind of thought, well, that's fucking alien. I mean, seven, There's one alien, big deal. Yeah, seven people in a ship with one alien. Aliens has a whole fucking army. That's my yeah. thing. Um, and then when I finally saw it, I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> and what's crazy about that chestburster scene is that it was, by all accounts of what this word means, it was spoiled for me. But the first time I saw it, for real saw it, it was still really effective. It's insane. <laughs> it's crazy how it's still effective. And even now, like I think about showing it to people who don't even like horror movies, just so I can be like, but just look at this. Look how crazy this is. I mean, okay, is there some part of me that kind of like is detached from it because I think about how it was done and I think about how... 
what the puppet looks like. Yeah. And sure, sure. All that shit is there. But it's still really good. It really works. And um, I just think it's a bit of movie magic that like people reference all the time. But if you think you know about it, like if you think like, oh yeah, I, I never watched Alien, but I know about that scene. You kind of do in some sense. But in another sense, seeing that shit when that movie came out must have fucking destroyed some oh people. Oh my god. There must have been people who were like, what did I what is happening yeah. right now? It's so within the context of the movie, it's so much more than just a cool special effect. It is a to me very bold. I mean, I guess now any violent decision is not that bold because we've done it all so it's not really that interesting but at the time a very bold move a move i'm sure that tempted them to give this movie a fucking x i'm oh sure God, they yeah. were thinking about an x for this john um and something that isn't just shocking but narratively sets the tone of like we're not fucking around this absolutely is. and after that moment the level of fear that they have it makes so much sense. You know what I mean? Like, you're just like, oh, I'm now terrified for the rest of this film. You know? Yeah. Seeing the eggs is scary. He comes back with the thing on his face. That's kind of scary. It's scarier for me now that I know what that is. I think at the time, I'm sure watching, you're like, oh, that's gross. Yeah, exactly. You're not like, oh, so it's, it's blood as acid. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I just think that um, that once the chestburster scene happens, it is just nonstop anxiety till the movie's over. With moments where I'm just legitimately like, they could have just killed, they could at any moment just kill Ripley and you'd be like, well, that's a good movie. <laughs> I mean, that's... it works. No part of you would be like, well, that's cheap or that doesn't work or that was a bad decision. At any moment, at any moment, they could just kill Ripley and I would be like, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> that makes sense. That's how the movie was originally supposed to end. I mean, I'm sure there are people who think it, think it should end that way. I think the way it ends is fine. Yeah. But, man. So, I mean, you've got that. You've got the chest pressure scene, which is just one of the most effective and powerful practical effects in the history of cinema. Then you've got this alien outfit. It's just crazy, you know, with this giant man. I mean, they literally found a giant man to wear this thing that at points it's just like, is is he on stilts? What's happening with this alien? Yeah. It's so huge. Um, and then, as you said, it's not just that the characters have the time to be established. I think it's also worth mentioning that almost everyone in this film, basically everyone in this film, is an amazing actor. Uh, and some of them are some of the most important character actors in genre cinema, period. Harry Dean Stanton is the movie. most important. Harry Dean Stanton is so fucking good in this movie. It's, I mean, he had done a bunch of stuff before this, um, and I really think, you know, you obviously can't compare this to, like, Parish, Texas, which is his masterpiece. But with what he's given to do in this movie, he is, a, like, him and Yafet Kodo are actually, to me, the second most of people. Obviously, Sigourney Weaver, you spend the most time with her, yeah. you're pulling for her. She's the most important character, to a certain extent. Then they're, to me, the most important characters. They really establish, like, the sort of world in a very serious way and mm -hmm. they add whatever and then it's really uh, honestly everyone else is really good but it's 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 robot guy yeah because he has to be the one dude that you're like what about that motherfucker though? <laughs> i just don't trust him and that is 
that is what makes it, it it can't just be a monster movie. It is a monster movie, but it's not just that. That there's this other threat and danger and reality to that world. And that adds just that extra something that makes the movie work. Uh I will close with a quote from I believe it was Men, Women and Chainsaws. Sure. When it comes to summing up this movie, capitalist greed is the first cause of horror. Yeah. I mean, again, we said I don't want to beat a dead horse on this, but their lives are already fucked. Yeah. They're already not in the most hopeful place in the world. They're getting by. They're not hopeless, but it's not like, yay. It's like things already suck, and then here at the bottom, like here in the bottom of the barrel, there's a thing trying to eat us. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Or at the very least, turn us into a fucking incubator. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's right. That's more accurate. I mean, I will say that's, I think, in hindsight of aliens, alien seems even more cruel because that alien couldn't, he just wants to eat them. He's not going to impregnate. He's not a queen. He can't lay eggs. So really, he just wakes up and he's like, I guess I got to kill all this meat so then I can uh, just hang out here till some more meat comes. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's. The the life the life cycle of the xenomorph is a lot different in our next movie. It is, and it's a lot different. But a lot of the themes that are established in this movie are going to be carried over into the next one. Yep. And added upon. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back. We're going to talk about 1986's science fiction horror action fucking masterpiece, Aliens. We'll be right back. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. That's the plan. All right, people, on the ready line. Yeah. I am me. Yeah. Yeah. I am me. Yeah. 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 Get on the ready line, Marine. Get down to die. Get on the ready line. back to talk about James Cameron's masterpiece behind Terminator Aliens. And in in the Cameron filmography, where does this rank for you? Probably number two. Okay. More than, um, what am I forgetting? The Abyss? Yes, it goes Terminator, Aliens, Terminator 2, The Abyss. Huh. And then True Lies. Huh. All right. I'll give you that. 
So, Aliens, released on July 18th, 1986, written and directed by James Cameron, starring everybody. Yep. I mean, it's got, I didn't even write down, it's got Bill Paxton, uh, Bill Paxton, (laughs) Bill Paxton, fucking Michael Bean. Uh, You know what, I'm going to look it up, because there's too many good people to, to, to miss in this. So we got... Sigourney Weaver, Michael Bean, Paul Reiser, Lance Hedgerson, Bill Paxton, William Hope, Jeanette Goldstein, Al Matthews, uh, Mark Rolston, who was important because he was in Shawshank Redemption, and then the uh, the red shirts who we're not going to fucking talk about. But we'll talk about uh, Colette Hiller. She plays Corporal uh, Corporal Farrow, the pilot, and uh, Carrie Henn, who played Newt. Um, what can be said about this movie? Uh, first off, I think I'll just go up front and says, I think it continues the line of thought when it comes to corporate greed and capitalism being an inherent evil, because this movie also adds that the military industrial complex, instead of a faceless and nameless company that is just sending people out there to die on a chance they might get something. Once this company realizes that they actually do have something to profit profit from they become even fucking more heartless sure uh this movie sets up the basic plot of this is takes place 57 years after alien ripley's uh her shuttle is discovered by a salvage team she goes back to earth um she's yelling about this alien and she thinks that no one's listening but what she doesn't know is that this fucking scumbag paul reiser who's an executive for this Whalen yutani corporation that you know she works for he's definitely listening there's a colony that's been set up on this, the moon that they landed on where the alien was. He sends colonists out to investigate. And of course, they get infected with aliens. And Ripley is brought back into the action when contact is lost with the colony. And she is sent in with a detachment of colonial marines to Weird. investigate. Now, this film continues many themes that are established in Alien. It just takes them to another level. As I said, for one, it takes the theme of capitalism, treating people as a means to an end and not merely an end of themselves, because Paul Reiser does not give a fuck about anyone but himself in this But I think movie. to be fair, it, it, it it's not actually to me a sharper criticism, because this film suggests that Paul Reiser can manipulate the system for his own personal gain. He's, oh, okay. he's concerned with, if we get back, I will be famous. It's not clear that the corporation said we should send the colonists to go check that out. It's not clear that the corporation said, fuck all those Marines, we need that alien. But I'm saying he the was... The movie makes it seem like Paul Reiser is making those decisions, which is still a criticism, but that's a more popular 80s... Crit- like, the criticism in Alien in 1979 probably made some people uncomfortable. Yeah. This criticism is all over the 80s of capitalism, you know, it's good, it's bad, but particular assholes, they're the real problem. I got you. So like this movie, again, I'm not saying it only says that, but I'm saying that the focus is more on him. Yeah. Whereas what's great about Alien is the per- one person you think is the bad guy isn't even a guy. It's a it's a machine. That like there's no individual to blame for the thing that they're in. The whole system has been like you don't matter. Yeah go into danger. This is like, I don't know, Paul Razor made a call here. And I would say by being pro-military, though very skeptical of the military, it's a little bit pro-capitalism too. Because the Marines, though they're idiots and they've made dumb decisions, they're still good. They're still the good guys. Yeah. They just would be better if they listened to the warnings of the person who actually knows what they're talking about, who says, y'all... This is bad. And they're all kind of like, yeah, we get it, lady. Whatever. Yeah. They're, 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 
in the sense that it is, and you're going to get into this, so I don't want to spoil yeah. your whole load, but uh, in the sense that it is about Vietnam to some extent, yeah, it's about Vietnam in a way that a lot of movies about Vietnam don't take seriously the humanity of the Vietnamese people. The issue with Vietnam is that we went into this situation, didn't know what the fuck we were doing, got ourselves into all kinds of danger, got ripped up and torn into shreds, mm-hmm. and it's about our ego, which is true. None of that is wrong. Yeah. But the xenomorphs aren't actually good stand-ins for what we were facing because xenomorphs are actually an unkillable machine. Yeah. And the Vietnamese, they just took advantage of the fact that we couldn't commit to a full war. Yeah, and yeah, they yeah. did okay. But they're still humans who got mostly slaughtered in a lot of ways. It's not like there's no sympathetic movie to make about the xenomorphs where the queen's like, I was going to let her go. Yeah. And then she, I mean, I think that scene is actually. We'll get into it. Yeah. I think that scene is not as positive as we make it out to be. But so when this movie, you know, as Liam just said, it's it's often James Cameron has said it's a it's his critique of the Vietnam War, and when it all boils down to, it can be summed up as such: it is about a technologically advanced force going up against a quote unquote primitive enemy and getting their fucking asses just destroyed, just decimated, and it all comes down to inept leadership. In this case, you know, William Hope's character, who's yeah. this like greenhorn ROTC guy that no one else trusts. Mm-hmm. And then the fact that in this movie, all the Marines, the only people that give Ripley the time of day and treat her like an actual human being are Al Matthews and Michael Bean. Right. And, that, you know, they're the only ones who are like, uh, no, she's actually useful. Like, yeah. you know, they, they actually they, 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 they listen to her somewhat. Everyone else is just too busy showing off how big their dicks are. Right. And even to the point of when they show up to this, they're, they're, they're like, okay, oh, xenomorphs, whatever. They get to this colony, they walk in, and it's very clear right away that's something, that it's, that's not a down transponder. It's not fucking down communications. Like, some really awful shit happened here. Terrible. Terrible. They find, they find these, like, uh, handmade barricades, you know, where people were like welding chairs and shit up against to, to keep these fucking aliens out. They make a comment about the, like they walk in and they're meet like there's like small arms fight. Like there, there was a fucking war zone here. Even through all that, even when they see this fucking battle, the only time they say, yeah, maybe Ripley was right is when they find a hole where, um, someone, what it, what it looks like it happened and someone had killed one of these xenomorphs and then the fucking acid hit boom, boom down to the floors. And I think it's Michael Bean says, hey, it looks like someone bagged one of Ripley's baddies. And then Paul Reiser says, looks like you were right. It's like no fucking shit. They show up. There are fucking barricades all over the place. No one's answering. Like, and it's only when they have the physical evidence in front yeah. of them that they cannot ignore anymore. It is only then that they sort of acknowledge that she well, was right. And I think also the idea that I think there's an inherent criticism uh, in the way, I don't want to say just criticism. There's a almost like a satire in the way that they are so both undisciplined in their ego, but then very controlled because they have all these like very technical things they're doing that they're doing as trained military types, which are fucking useless. They're mostly designed to keep you from getting shot. No one's shooting you. Yeah. They do all this stuff like, okay, second unit, cover this, cover. They're covering their angles. There's no fucking angles. These are giant monsters. Yeah. And they're doing everything right. And even when they get into the facility, everything is by the book. And the book is stupid. Like, 
like nothing you can do is going to get you through this situation. And I think that was very intentional. It's like mocking this idea that like if we move it the right way, we have the right discipline, then we can face anything. No, you can't. It's telling that the only person who survives is the only Marine that survives is Hicks. Because when they're like, you can't use all those fancy weapons. He's like, okay, cool. I'm not going to go by the book. I'm going to take out this handy shotgun that I carry for yeah. some reason. And he, you know, he removes himself from that disciplined way of going about things. Right. Starts acting in a nonlinear way and he survives. And everyone else who's just like, we need to lay down a suppressing fire, you know, move back in squads of two, they all get within literally seconds, like literally less than a minute, we go from a squad of 15 to fucking five people. I mean, and it's important to keep in mind too, like there's these sort of beats, you know, they're still on this like kind of invasion military beat. Then they have to retract to the fortress and this becomes again, a metaphor, like an old West movie. Like it's a castle siege. movie. Yeah. 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 We're being attacked by the outsiders. Let's call them, I don't know, natives. (laughs) Uh, But anyways, that they've prepared in every way that they know how, and they have a very good plan. It's a very good plan, but it's a very good plan that doesn't account for, Beings that can walk on the ceiling yeah. for large periods of time. Yeah. It just didn't occur to them. Even though they just saw these fucking things descend from holes in the ceiling. Unfold their... themselves from the fucking ceiling to descend and attack. And yet they just didn't think like, oh, right, drop ceiling. They might be in the drop ceiling. Yeah. But, I mean, they do eventually think of it, right, when it's like... Literally when it's too late. Just When it's, it's literally looking them in the face. It's crazy. Uh, uh, so I want to back up a little bit on this uh, and just say, um, oh, uh, you know, we, we recently, asked, I recently asked, and then I think we've continued this conversation, but whether people prefer Alien or Aliens, I want to say up front, we watched for this the director's cut, which I had seen portions of in the TV version. I don't know if I'd ever sat through the whole director's cut or not. Parts of it look familiar, so maybe I, yeah, yeah. I just remember. But let me just say, if you're... If you're giving us your input on this and you've only seen the theatrical version, your opinion doesn't count. <laughs> Period. It just doesn't count. I'll co-sign that. The theatrical cu- the the director's cut is so much better. And I I legitimately will say that if we're just going by theatrical versions, I still think Alien is better and in fact I think significantly better. But once we bring in this director's cut, they're pretty close to each other. They're different kinds of movies, but they're so close to each other that the folks like yourself who say you think Aliens is better, I have way less judgment for you because it's it's very the theatrical cut or the director's cut is very good. I think. I think it's telling in what you were saying and when we started watching this and in the theatrical cut, it just we don't see the settlement until right. they show up. Right. In the director's cut there's a whole segment where they're like on this, like, you know, we got this fucking printout from Earth. They want us to go through these coordinates and check it out. Ah, send so-and-so out there. And then, like, they got to the hallway and there's, like, all these, like, kids out there. Y'all. They really emphasize how many children are present. Thing, we, when, if you just watch Aliens, the theatrical cut, I think a significant critique of the movie is, what the fuck is going on with nude anyway? Yeah, exactly. Because there's no context. They don't show you any evidence that children exist in this world except for Newt. And you know Newt has a brother, but like, okay, well, why are Newt and Newt's brother? It, it, nothing about the theatrical cut 
is like people lived here. It yeah. just feels like a like a utilitarian base. What the director's cut does that's so fucking brilliant is you're in the area where is it living space? This is workspace. And there's so many fucking kids that the kids are playing in the work area. Yeah. Where you're not supposed to be there unless you're like authorized personnel and these fuckers are on three wheelers and yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. Yo, I that makes the empty base so much more tragic to actually see mm-hmm. that there was life here. Again, I'm not saying the theatrical cut is bad. Um, I will say I think the TV cut though obviously less cool, is a little bit better because at least it has the automatic machine guns, which I fucking love. Yeah, Uh, But I think once you take in this director's cut, it really is like, okay, I'm getting a whole world here. Now, I still love the economy and effectiveness of the first movie more, but I get this like, oh no, this is a full world and it's a more complete story, especially when, you know, the uh, addition of... uh, so much more information about her child and about her loss. No wonder she's attached to Newt. You know, yeah. she has that connection because she's feeling her own sense of loss. There. I, I think a criticism that that has been leveled at this movie um, is that where in Alien, Ripley's feminine feminine femininity wasn't really front and center. Sure, which I disagree with, and I'll explain in a second why. In this movie especially in the director's cut, James Cameron chooses chooses to reveal that she had a daughter, which I think is horribly tragic. But the criticism is is that that sort of sets into stone that Ripley is a woman. Because how do we show that someone's a woman? They have a child. And I've read critiques that that was a cheap gimmick by Cameron to have Ripley invested in Newt. Because they were like, well, it's basic human empathy. Like, she could just be invested in it because she's, you know, there's a child in need. We need, you know. But I think that the fact that Ripley had a daughter, it sort of overrides that. um, Because the end of it is like, I get that there's like basic human decency and empathy. And you see that with the interactions with some of the Marines and New is they kind of like, they, you know, they, they get friendly with her. But the end when Ripley is like, this place is going to detonate in 10 minutes. I have to go back and save this little girl. Not to sound too cold and callous, you would not do that for a child you knew for 48 hours. It has to, in order for that to make sense, there had to be something that in, in, in Ripley's character that was being spoken to by this child in danger. And I don't think that is a weakness in storytelling to critique the portrayal of Ripley as a non-woman and alien, it fails because one of the last times we see Ripley, she's in her underwear and her little skimpy underwear. And we have to see that she's like, it, it just, it's so like, I don't really give a shit, but that scene in that movie is so unlike the rest of the movie that it's almost like Ridley Scott put that in there just to be like, Oh yeah, by the way, she's a fucking woman in case anyone forgot. Yeah. It feels like a sexualized scene. I mean, it's, I think it's hard to see it that way, if you're not someone who's super into bone thin women, which you know, Scorpion Weaver is very thin. That's just yeah. her body, and good for her. Yeah. But I think that at the time, the way that that shot says to me, this is meant to be kind of sexy. Yeah. You know? And it's supposed to remind you of who she is, and it's also d- supposed to disarm you for what's about to happen. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the other function there, which is you know, 
a classic horror movie thing, right? To it's not just to tantalize you before someone dies. It's to drop your guard. Yeah, it's to drop your guard a little bit, and I think it's effective at that. I would say, if anything, the only part of that criticism that makes sense to me is not so much Newt, but Bean. That her relationship with him borders on action movie flirty, it's, whatever. It has its moments, and and I don't know that it quite goes there, but it. I get why someone would combine that with Newt and then say, this is a feminizing thing. And, blah, blah, blah. and I just don't think that's fair. Plus, this is my opinion, and we can go here now. Um, I'm not sure that a scene that we tend to in- interpret as badass, and maybe Cameron meant it this way, but as a viewer, the scene where she burns everything up to me is related to her having this deep connection to Newt and her being like, you know what, fuck you. You took my child. Yeah, I lost a child because of you. Yeah. Now. And I don't think it's a cool... Th- like, I think the interpretation of the scene everyone is just so... It's so She's bad fucked at. tough. She gets that look. And then she, and I think, well, this is another scene that reminds me of Vietnam and that we can't let go of our pain even when it makes sense to. Yeah. You know for a fact, as a rational human who's not a reactive bug who just wants to protect <laughs> themselves, you know... That they're all gonna die anyway. Yeah. In fact, if she had left it alone, mom, you know, the queen thinks everything's cool. She hangs out there. The whole planet blows up. Bada bing, bada boom. You solved the alien problem. It's here's the thing: the aliens are also intelligent enough to understand that when she has this fucking fire gun uh-huh. and there's a room full of eggs, they start walking in. She holds up the guns. They stop because they understand, like, whoa, whoa, like she has our mother hostage. Right. It's. I mean. Let me be clear. It's an amazingly shot scene. That is one of oh, the yeah. most icon- iconic images. But, but when she makes the decision as she's about to escape, she's about to get out of this thing. It's a very... It, it's funny because there's... To call back earlier in the movie, the ambush scene is when the Marines first get attacked and Vasquez does the, let's rock! It starts shooting up the place and then like five seconds later, Apone's like, Vasquez, calm the fuck down. Let me get back on the horn and see what's going on. And you think it's going to be this big badass scene and he just like throws cold water on it and it just stops in its tracks and then it becomes like a fucking massacre. So I understand that like James Cameron is sort of like, I don't want to say subverting like action movie tropes, but I do watch that scene and I'm like, it is kind of funny how he builds it up to be this big badass scene and then a few seconds later it's like, all right, guys, seriously, stop fucking shooting. Can I just talk to this guy for a second? Yeah, and it's yeah, like yeah. that scene where Ripley's like fighting the queen in the in the in like the egg chamber feels a little too cheap an action movie. I think it's supposed to be a I think it's supposed to be a vengeance scene. Yeah. She's making an irrational decision at that moment. She's saying I mean, I fully believe she could have walked out of that room and they would have let her go. They would have let her they're like the queen cuz the queen is the is the brain. Yeah. And she's really demonstrated like I could murder all your children. Yeah. But as intelligent as the aliens are, they don't understand nuclear physics. <laughs> if they did, they wouldn't have built the nest in the fucking nuclear yeah. power plant. Yeah. Like clearly, you know, they're just like it's warm in here. Yeah, we like the warmth. We got the thing. This is good. This is a good spot. And so uh Ripley does understand though, and she knows if I leave here with Newt and I get on that ship and we go away, you're all fucked. This whole thing's going to blow up. There's no surviving this. There's no sequel to this movie. Yeah. Unless we find new aliens. There's only a sequel to this movie because I decided to fuck around. I decided, you know what? Fuck you. You didn't win. I need you to know you didn't win. Yeah. So I'm going to shoot all this stuff. And then it's even more depressing when she thinks she's been abandoned by Bishop and she literally has to say, like, Newt, close your eyes. Because she, she thinks she's yes. about to die. Yes. And I'm not, I'm not convinced that there isn't some part of her that's like, it was worth it. It was worth it to get those fucking, 
to get those fucking, fucking babies. Bugs. Show that fucking queen what's up. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure she actually thought the queen was immobile. I think that the movie very much suggests yeah. you wouldn't look at this queen and go, she can move, but because she literally rips herself apart from the from the proboscis thing. I love how, like, I, I would I would have loved to see Ripley's reaction when the thing just tore itself free. just been like, oh, fuck. Yeah, exactly. But by that point, she's already got to fight off all the drones that are coming after her, which I didn't never thought of them as drones, really. But the more I thought of it this time watching, I'm like, oh, they're drones. I she's... believe the technical term is warrior cast. Sure, sure, sure. Whatever. I mean, that's in, in the in the in the fanfic world world of aliens. They're known as the warriors. I mean, because they have because they have. I the... get it. We want them to be like the predators, but guess what? No, but they but Liam, the original xenomorph had a smooth carapace. These have ridged carapace to show that their cast is the warrior cast. They also have three fingers instead of six. I'm going to go ahead and say... Don't bring that shit on this podcast ever again. Don't bring that shit on this podcast <laughs> ever again. More importantly, those are just weird design decisions that Cameron made to make them different. Yeah. And uh, although, I mean, it has been like 50 years, so I'm not surprised that there's different ones. But also, um, I'm fine with thinking they're a different kind of... I'm uncomfortable with cast because I don't actually believe this idea that there's a whole society... I don't know. Cast cast is a term not just in not, not in like human society. Cast is a term for like hive insects, like ants and bees and termites. Cast is a biological term. Like there's the soldier cast, the worker cast. That's a bad biological term, and I wish they would stop using it. It's not a bad biological term. I don't like it. I think that's dumb. No, that's the whole point. Just call just call it a just call it a, the whatever bee. Doesn't need to be a whatever. Who bee the fuck cast. are you? I'm saying I'm right. It makes. The British caste system in India looks shitty. I'm all for that. I don't think it does. I think it does because they're equating Indian people to fucking insects. No, I think that using the term caste is suggesting a societal implication. It's connecting what is an arbitrary societal thing to what's an actual biological difference. And there's no actual biological difference to caste. Castes are all made up. Yeah. So don't use the term caste for actual biological difference. The, the, these fucking aliens are actually physically different. And what we're describing is their actual physical difference. All right. I think it's a bad term. Doesn't Let's matter. use race. Is that oh, <laughs> fuck. I fucking hate you so much. Okay. A- anyways, all that to say, I think that moment, which I had formerly, and I think most people do, as a badass moment. Here's Ripley showing, she's not going to take any shit. She's, she's not going to let these aliens around. Off. In reality, it's a bad decision. If she just left... It's a less interesting movie. I'm I'm glad they did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if she just left, that was a better decision. And I don't mean that as a critique of the script. I think that is showing her uh, honestly weakness. She can't. She she's taken too much. She could walk out of this thing without any danger. But she's like, I no, I can't. It's been too much. I had to come get this one. You cost me my other one. Yeah. All these people are dead because of you. This is a meaningless act. But I'm going to do it anyway just to make you mad. Oh shit, you're coming? All right, oh god. It's made even more irrational in the light of when you really again you look at the way Hicks is he how he is he's also an outsider in this. I right, realize right. he you know, he uh, Michael Bean was actually cast in the middle or in the beginning of production after all these all the other Marines had done their boot camp thing, so he was also technically an outsider. Uh after the initial ambush when they get their asses kicked to quote the late great William Paxton. They're like, what are we going to do now? And Ripley immediately is like, like to give Vasquez some credit, Vasquez is like, we got a couple canisters of nerve gas. We should fucking chuck it down there and then get out of here. And they're like, well, I don't know. And then Ripley's like, we should just take off and hit nuke the site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. Everyone else is like, I don't know. 
Hicks is immediately like, that's a fucking good idea. Get on the horn right now and send someone down here. We're doing that. And so there's that, that there's, the, again, there's this weird, you know, great rational moments in horror movie history when Ripley's like, oh yeah, we have a problem. Let's just leave. Okay, cool. And then later she's like, okay, I have solved the problem. I have the little girl at my hip. We are getting out of here. These things are all about to die. I better fight them. I better just. Get I better my, pick a fight. I gotta get my looks in, and it's important. I think again, I've never heard James Cameron talk about this, and maybe I'm wrong. I think he wants you to think this. Why? The close up on the number. He wants you to know how excessive she's. I mean, she blows almost her whole load. Sh- uh, uh, but what I mean by that is payload of ammunition. Yes. Just shooting eggs. She isn't. She's already lit it on fire, and then she just starts shooting. Yeah, she's shooting the fucking queen. She's shooting the queen in its ass sack. She's doing all this stuff for what? For, the whole thing is about to go. And let's say it doesn't. Let's say they get up in space. Oh, we were wrong. It, it didn't implode. Well, nuke the site from orbit. Nuke it. They have nukes on the ship. Yeah, I would let it blow up. Then I nuke it a fucking yeah, again. I would nuke the the dust. <laughs> yeah, and then I just get out of there. I, I think it's supposed, the way it's shot and the way it is, you're not supposed to be high-fiving your buddy during that scene. No, not at you're all. You're supposed to be going, oh, God, she's lost it. Here Get it the is. fuck out of here. No, she finally lost it because she's been rational this whole time. Yeah. I mean, she's a little irrational before she goes, but the whole time on the trip, you're waiting for her to have her freak out because she's gone through trauma, and yet she's the most even keel almost the entire movie. Yeah. I think she keeps her shit together amazingly well, which a lot of victims of trauma actually turn, can do it, it, but then she gets to that moment and i think that is her, tra- her that breaking is her point yeah she's had too much and she goes off it's telling that you should bring that up because ripley's performance on direction from james cameron to further push the vietnam allegory she, he directed her i want you to portray this person as someone who is returning from a long war and cannot adjust to society that's how I, I don't want you to portray yourself as a victim. Right. I want you to portray yourself as someone who is having trouble adjusting, and it's fucking gorgeous how she does that. She's so good. She's I mean, so good in doing that. Let's let's get into those technical aspects. I mean, okay, I think practical effects wise, not that everything is like perfect or anything, but I think we're in the same space where it's really effective for most of the movie. It the one thing that I really liked about this that I didn't realize until I read about it in the one book I have is that. James Cameron wanted these wanted these aliens to look as inhuman as possible. He shot the scenes of the drones. He would shoot them at different speeds when they were like walking. Oh yeah. And he did a lot of things where he would he would he would shoot an alien walking backwards and then play it in reverse to give this sort of like strange, frantic, insectile look to it. Yeah. Um he also, uh, one of the ways they designed the alien was the original alien in the first movie was the original uh, costume in Aliens was largely one piece. Yeah. Like shell, whatever. It's also interesting that people were saying in, in an interview I read how uh, the one guy, I think he was like O'Bannon's as- assistant, would like go into work and see the costume like hanging up and be like, I can't fucking look at it. It's just too fucking spooky. What James Cameron did is because most of this movie is shot in darkness, he stripped it down to people just wearing like black leotards, and then they would glue small parts on them and then use makeup to blend the the hard insectile shell in with the black leotard. But I think the true special effects, practical effects masterpiece of this movie is the Queen. Yeah. Because that was a 14-foot tall puppet. 
that yeah. they fucking built. Yeah. And the only time they used a scale model for that thing was there were certain shots at the end of when she's fighting it with the power loader that they used scale models for that. Everything else was there was a team of puppeteers m- making this thing walk around the set, which must have been the stuff of nightmares. Yeah. That scene when the queen steps out of the elevator and it's like dark in the elevator and there's like a quick flash and you just see like the front of her snout and then she steps out in the light is in my top five scariest shots of any movie ever. There's just something about the way the queen moves, the way she just, she's just a fucking nightmare. I think it really brings something that the fact that Stan Winston went out of his way to go all out and to create an actual full scale model that, that brings a certain weight to the performance because when Ripley is looking up at this thing and she's acting and she's reacting to it, she's reacting to a thing right there. Right. It's not, you know, I, I don't bash CGI. I don't think CGI is shit, whatever. But the performance is really telling when an actor is actually reacting to something they're seeing, especially when you have a little girl who's reacting to this thing, like trying to grab her and whatnot, which I'll get to in a moment. Uh, there's there's an interview with Carrie Han about how they made this movie. And I mean, she's not, a, she's like a teacher now. She's, you know, this is the only movie she ever acted in. So her, her comments on the actual craft of acting, they're not very illuminating, but some of the anecdotes about what life was on the set was actually like kind of charming. So another criticism I've, I've read of this movie is not only does it continue the concept of the feminine as horrific that Alien sets down, there's a lot of people who think that this movie is a coded reference, a coded criticism by James Cameron of quote-unquote welfare queens. Because uh, this movie, the, the depiction of the alien queen as this black monster that's just swollen and existing with all of its offspring and there's no father around is a, quote, Regonite nightmare that uh, a lot of critics have accused James Cameron of sort of putting on a pedestal and, like, legitimizing. Which I think is a bit ridiculous because James Cameron is a little left-leaning, isn't he? I have no idea. I mean, but I, I still don't think he's the type of person who would make anything that fucking silly. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I don't buy that uh, at all, actually. No, I mean, I think a fair criticism is that I do buy the criticism that James Cameron is using the idea of the the mother and the feminine and turning it into horror. But I, I don't think that the alien queen is a particularly feminine, aside from the fact that she lays eggs. And... I think most of the horror from the alien queen comes from the fact that she's a fucking giant alien bug that you have to defeat with a robot. I mean, in a, in a sense, you could... I think you could make a much more compelling argument that the queen represents something else different from the rest of the alien series and that she's the first sympathetic alien. You get why she goes after Ripley. Yeah. You just killed all my babies. Yeah. And now I gotta kill you. Done and done. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it, that doesn't mean you feel that sympathetic. You still want Ripley to win. You're not yeah. rooting for the alien. But the idea is like, the rest, What part of what's so fucked about the aliens is like, we're just a warm place to keep their eggs. Like, they don't really seem to give a fuck about us. We don't understand them, other than their need to procreate or whatever it is, build their nest. There's no whatever. The first moment where you're kind of like, okay, I see, I see where you're coming from. It's just this queen like being like, oh, don't burn, don't, don't, please, burn. please don't, don't burn my babies. Yes, I know I'm huge and you're small, and I know I've got a literal army, yeah. of uh, you know, acid blood, 
near near impossible to murder henchmen yeah. that could send after you. Please. But I'm willing to not do that if you don't burn my babies. Yeah. It, and so like in, in the idea that it's like completely about the you know horrific feminine, I guess I, I would say the only way I would agree with that is that in the end these are two mothers at war. Yeah. And so in that sense it's it's it it, it could be read as um uh this protective motherly instinct or whatever. Yeah. But I agree with you, you know, though the queen is laying eggs, still has killer penis mouth, still the tail, very phallic. Yes. In fact, literally penetrates uh, the good android, Bishop, yeah, yeah. and rips him to shreds. Uh, you know, the way that he is killed is... Very phallic and just come and, spewing out of his mouth. Yeah, very rapey. <laughs> so, like the the idea that this is all about the feminine, I think maybe is ignoring some of the other visual markers. And honestly, there's already for me, I don't think Cameron is a very layered director. Yeah. So I think when he says I had Vietnam in my mind, doesn't take a lot to see that. No. I mean, he that's clearly what's primarily on his mind is Vietnam. And the idea to me of adding in the queen is simply to give this alien, you know, it's important to keep in mind the first movie, all we have is eggs, we have face hugger, we have alien thing that comes yeah. out. We have no other context. We don't know where these eggs, for all we knew, no, these eggs could have come from anywhere. Yeah. We don't know that they were laid by a queen or anyone else. We don't know how long they've been there. We don't know if there are different kinds of aliens. None of that stuff is there in that first movie. Yeah. All this is is Cameron adding a little more texture to the film, which I think it needs in this. I mean, we've already stepped up to like a whole fucking army of these things. Yeah. Why wouldn't you want to add an idea of a nest? And I think it's a, it's a very good final boss. Right. If this is a video game. Right. But going on back to what you were saying about <clears throat> the sort of lack of malice on the Queen's part. It is interesting that Alien was one of the first movies that was about aliens where they weren't like conquering space advanced or conquering spacefaring advanced like uh, Independence Day style aliens where they were this advanced civilization that held this insane technology. It's like, sure. you know, there's there's one scene when um, they're testing out the sentry guns. The aliens are like fucking with them and they cut the power and I think Vasquez says, like, oh, shit, they cut the power. And and uh, Bill Paxton says, how can they do that? They're just animals. And it really drives home that, like, holy shit, these aliens aren't malicious. You know what I mean? Like, they're malicious by our standards because they're trying to fucking kill us. But ultimately, really all they are, they're animals acting on the prime directive. Right. They're trying to defend their territory. Right. And they're trying to, re you know, procreate. Right. There's no, the only, the only, the only alien that has any sort of real, I think, um, agency is the queen. Right. And even her agency is simply the prime directive, procreate and protect what's mine. And I think it's kind of telling that because she doesn't have a choice to do otherwise. There's no real agent. There's no real morality there. But there definitely is a morality on Ripley's part to be like, guess what? All your shit's on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. Yeah. Especially because it's so... Anyways, we, we, I, I beat that horse to death. I like I'm it saying it's, it's a good... It's, a good, it's it was, so funny to me because it's like, you literally have nukes back on the ship. Yeah. If you don't trust that things going to explode, just nuke them from space. Yeah. But the look... And, and, and it's, to me, partly this is informed by the way it's shot. It's also her performance. 
the look of fucking disgust on her She's face. She's so sickened by it. She's just like this fucking it's thing. Like, it's like me when I walk into an alcohol store for whatever reason. I'm just, yeah. I see all the alcohol. And I'm yeah, just I, like, do, I wish I had I did want to talk to you about that. You should stop lighting liquor stores on fire. <laughs> you should just stop lighting them on fire. I, and carrying guns in them and screaming, <laughs> you fucking bitch, and just shooting the place up. That's bad. That's never happened. Stop driving forklifts in the power in, in the liquor stores. Yeah, uh, I I do want to just briefly also mention that of course the uh, the fucking power lifter whatever that thing is called just the coolest thing in any oh, yeah. movie ever fighting the alien. It's so sick. I don't care. It's very anime esque, and I love it. That and it's so good. That scene where Ripley steps out and they get away from her, you bitch. I could just fucking just drizzle out on pancakes. I mean, don't be wrong. Is that classic Cameron ass? That is, is absolutely is eventually he is he going to overdose on that at some point? Yes. yes, of course he is. It doesn't matter. This is the where it works. This is where it's right. It's like the fir- the first time you heard a dive bomb in a metal song. Yeah. You were what like, what the fuck is this? Like, sick. Of course, now it's stupid. But at the time, it was like, yeah, what? Yeah. Yes. I'm less than a month away from turning 36, and I still get hyped as fuck when I hear, when I see that part. Yeah, it's cool. Um, I want to talk one more thing about like abstract themes before we talk about some of the technical aspects of this movie. Uh, an interesting analysis I read of this, um, I think again was in Men, Women, and Chainsaws, was the concept of the destruction of family, and how it eventually unites everyone. Um, Hicks, Ripley, and Newt are drawn together by the loss of their family. Ripley lost her daughter. Newt lost her family. And Hicks lost all of his comrades. Right. So in the end, I think that the three of them coming together is sort of like a commentary upon the, I guess, need for human connection. Sure. You know, that they, they need this, their family's been destroyed, so ultimately in the end they have to become a family. And I, I would even include Bishop in that too, because Bishop is, you know, he's sort of the outlier. He saves what's her what's her name's life. New at the end when he grabs her and keeps her from being sucked up the door lock. But uh, yeah, the, the destruction of family, you know, like when Ripley destroys the aliens' family, I think is is a nice little sugary saccharine theme in this movie. Sure, I think that's true. Uh, so some of the you know interesting technical aspects of this viewpoint of, of this viewpoint, Jesus Christ, I've been talking for too long. There has been some criticism of what it was like to have a child on the set, set of this movie. Like, why would you have Carrie Hen on this? And she has said in interviews that she actually wasn't afraid of the alien. She didn't find the alien scary at all. Um, so she said what she would do is she's like deathly afraid of dogs. So she would pretend to be a, that they were dogs to be afraid of them. Because she said one of the problems was is not only did she not find the design scary, but between takes, the stuntman would like take their helmets off and she was like, oh, that's Dave. That's that guy. Like, that's my friend. Like, we had lunch with him earlier. So there's the scene when she's in the sewer and uh, in the water and the alien comes up behind her. She said, like, in, in an interview, because they had to shoot that take so many times, that between takes, her and that dude, the stuntman, they would practice their sw- – they would hold onto the pipes and fucking, like, kick their feet and practice the swim kicks, which is just so charming to me for some reason. Sure. She also said that uh, when there would be, like, a lot of downtime – um, because like Paul Reiser was off doing his thing. He was like, don't talk to me. I'm in my trailer. Sigourney Weaver was, you know, her and Sigourney Weaver are apparently friends now, but Sigourney Weaver was also like the draw of this movie. She said the person that was like nicest to her was like Bill Paxton. He would like, I love that. He would like go and get like lunch with her and like help her with like schoolwork and like color worth and all that shit, which I think is just such a fucking beautiful thing. That just makes me love Bill Paxton even more. He's the best. Um, and then another, uh, thing about Bill Paxton I think is like hilarious uh, the scene where he's like Bishop do the thing with a knife 
And he's like, hold still, man. They were actually doing that for real. And Bill Paxton didn't know that they were going to use his hand. Like Jim Cameron was like, yeah. And then Bishop does this thing and he does that. And then when they got time to shoot, he like pulled Bill Paxton aside literally before the camp, just before the camera started shooting and was like, um, we're going to put your hand under his and they're going to hold you there. He's like, no, I'm not doing that. He's like, no, you're going to do it. So that's like when he's like, this shit ain't cool, man. That's not entirely like Bill Paxton like acting. That's him like, oh, fuck. God damn it. This is going to go horribly wrong. I want to talk. We've kind of dissected this movie for what it's worth, but I want to talk about some of the more like horror elements of this movie. I know there's one scene you want to talk about. Uh, I think, oh, also, we touched upon it before, but it's worth noting that James Cameron made all the Marines go through a week, like a week's long boot camp course. So all the, except for uh, Michael Bean, William Hope, who played Gorman, and Sigourney Weaver, all of those Marines learned how to break down these fictional weapons. They did all these like drill exercises. They did all this cool shit. Uh, James Cameron gave them their armor that was like completely blank. And he was like, I want you to decorate all this, you know, make it your own, do whatever you think would be what these guys would do. And I think that brings us a, a sort of strange, genuine camaraderie to them. Because when William Hope and those guys show up, he's immediately tagged as an outcast, as is Ripley. And to a lesser extent, so is Michael Bean, because one of the things I wanted to bring up was when we're talking about like the feminine is the horror, feminine is feminism is horror in this. It's telling that the one character, the one male that survives is the least traditionally masculine of them all. Sure. You know, you got loudmouth Bill Paxton who fucking dies. You got all these other guys like cool Drake with his fucking gun. He gets killed. Even the two women who die are, they exhibit more ma- like Vasquez. She's obviously like, "Hey Vasquez, you've been mistaken for a man." You know, they always give her shit because she's a fucking tough little badass. And then the uh, the the dropship pilot is also sort of like a no nonsense, like tough character. So it just it's 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 almost like every character that dies, they die because of this like it's like this destruction of masculinity, which I think is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. But Michael Bean survives because he exhibits like traits that aren't traditionally tough and masculine. The ambush scene in this movie. When the aliens climb out of the walls, I think is what sets this as like true horror. Sure. When those things are climbing out of the walls and unfolding themselves from the floor and climbing off the ceilings and they're just like picking these people off one by one. And most of that scene you see from the point of view of these people who are removed from it, you're seeing through these cameras as these Marines are being picked off one by one or hearing them is just fucking horribly unsettling. And one last thing about Carrie, Carrie Hen's audition. Um, James Cameron was unhappy with a lot of the auditions for that role because she would, these these actors would they would audition and then they would smile and say like my name's so and so and I'm auditioning for this and be like okay next. Carrie Hen won the role because she said, understanding auditioning for Newt, I understood that Newt was not a happy child and that's what got her that role. Hmm. Yeah. You want to talk about the claustrophobic scene with Bishop fucking crawling through the pipe? Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. It's okay. There's a lot of upsetting things in this movie. Like you said, the aliens descending from the ceiling, or I've always found the face hugger scene in the med lab where yes. he tries to get them impregnated, basically. Um, that's an upsetting scene. It always gave me anxiety. I have a fear of bugs and stuff. So <laughs> uh, at a certain point, uh, Lance Hendrickson mm-hmm. gets in a pipe that's literally the size he is as a human and he crawls through the pipe. That is almost more upsetting to me than anything else <laughs> in this movie. He's so, it's so small. I get that it's in a controlled environment and he's, he 
you know, whatever. You could not get me to do that. It's even knowing there's some sort of safety in place that he's going to get out of that pipe. No, I couldn't (laughs) do it. It's too, and I don't think of myself as claustrophobic until I saw him get in that fucking pipe. Like that's so tight. It's so tight. It's so tight. the, the 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 part of that shot that gets me, it's not when he climbs in the pipe, and it's not when it shows him crawling. It's when it switches to his point of view, and you see that fucking tiny, tiny, tiny point of light off in the distance. It's so far. I mean, you only believe it happened because he's an android. If they were like, and then a human got in this pipe and crawled, you'd be like, no, they didn't. No, they did not. They did not do that. No one has ever done that. Yeah. That's not real. Um, yeah, I, this movie is great. Uh, I Again, I think the first one is better, but this is like preferring, you know, I don't know. I don't even know what to say. Master Puppets to Ride the Lightning. Do you prefer Master of Puppets? Right no, I honestly, I, I, Metallica's first four records, he put a fucking gun to my head and asked me to pick a favorite one. I'm dying. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, I don't agree. But I will say that uh, I, I think this is really great, and I think that I get why people like myself prefer Alien. I prefer Alien. But if you haven't seen the director's cut, I would sit down and rewatch it. It's really effective. It's really well done. Um, I think it's a fitting sequel. It, yes. It's not better, but it doesn't need to be better. It just needs to be good and to work. And I think that it's the only Alien sequel that lives up to Alien in yes. any way, shape, or form. The other movies mostly miss. I think Alien 3 is not as bad as people make it out to be. No. But none of them are fitting sequels for Alien. No, they lack. They don't get the tone. They don't get the message. They don't get no. fucking anything right. Aliens, it's not the same movie, but you didn't come here for the same. You didn't come here for... Yeah. Another alien. You came here for something else. And yeah. I think this movie effectively does that. And it's an important part. And I think when we're talking about the effect, obviously Alien influenced a million movies. But I would say so did Aliens. That Aliens kind of changed, and, and maybe in some negative ways, because we've all watched some shitty 90s movies that thought they were Aliens. Not but only that, but you look at, like, if you look at the impact it's had on culture as a whole, you know, you like you look at... um. Look at video games. Like, what was, what's one of the most popular video games of all time? The Halo series. Right. You can look at Halo and you can see, like, the impact that Aliens had on this. Yeah. Which, I mean, neither of us are big video game people, but right. I know enough people who are, like, huge into video games that this, you know, those games shape their lives. Well, I would also argue comic books. I would argue... Um, yeah, the fuck... When did... Anime. Like, lots of things have been influenced by this movie. Here's a question. When, when, when did the brood... In, in Marvel Comics. When was it when were they around? That was like the early eighties? That's a good question. That was also Chris Claremont, wasn't it? It was. So uh yeah, I mean I don't know that we revolutionized anything for you. I'm sure you uh <coughs> already knew these movies and love them, but hopefully we remind you we reminded you a little bit. Nineteen eighty two is when the brood first showed up. So it was more influenced by Alien. Yeah. Okay. Um hopefully we remind you a little bit of why you love them. Uh, and maybe you'll rewatch them sometime soon. All right. So thank you for listening. As always, uh, you can head to www.cinepunks.com for more episodes of this podcast and several other great podcasts. We have some new stuff coming up. We got some new stuff that was on there. Uh, if you're interested in subscribing to our Patreon, www.patreon.com backslash cinepunks. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts like iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. If you listen to us on iTunes, please, please, please rate review and subscribe and download 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 until next time 
the actor who played the alien did not kill himself. Thank you for listening. Don't bring that up again. I won't. <laughs> All right. Peace. Bye.